You're listening to the Sixers Beat with your host, Derek Bodner, right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co. All right, welcome everybody. This is your host, Derek Bodner, here with the Sixers Beat. We are, it is Wednesday, it is a day away from the NBA draft, and for that final run-up to it, we brought in a host of experts, of insiders, of analysts who come in and tell you what it means for the Sixers to be adding Markel Fultz. First up, we have Kevin Pelton, an NBA insider for ESPN. You can, of course, follow him at kpelton on Twitter. Then we have Mike Schmitz, uh, my colleague, the director of scouting for Draft Express, and a contributor for Yahoo Sports The Vertical, and his Twitter handle is at Mike underscore Schmitz, S-C-H-M-I-T-Z. Then we're going to have on Cole Zwicker. Uh, he writes for the Step Back and 16 Wins a Ring, and he also hosts, hosts the What's on Draft podcast, and you can follow him at Cole Zwicker, Z-W-I-C-K-E-R. And then we have on Mike O'Connor. He writes for the Sixers Sense and B-Ball Breakdown and does terrific uh, terrific scouting video breakdowns of players and prospects and teams and plays and coaching styles and, and everything is a really great follow. Follow him, M O'Connor underscore NBA. M O C O N N O R underscore NBA. Excited to have them on. I think you're going to enjoy the podcast. Most of it is going to be focused on getting their opinion on Markel Fultz. We'll dig into a little bit of what the Sixers are passing on, basically, you know, what what Josh Jackson and those types would have been at the Sixers State at three, and a little bit of touching on you know, the second round or the late first round, should the Sixers trade into that, and what this, what could be in store there. We also, I recorded a podcast Friday afternoon with Mike uh, on what the Sixers should do at three, and we get into quite a bit of depth on some of the other prospects that we would have been talking about if they stayed at that spot. I will include that at the end of this podcast. That'll be about an hour and 15 minutes in. You can listen to that if you want. If you don't want to listen to it, that's fine too. Uh, but I'm going to include it in there just for, you know, just for your own information. All right, before we begin, though, I did want to get a quick word in about our sponsor. And look, this is an official read. I don't have anything scripted. This is no bullshit. But I have been using Harry's religiously since I got my first trial set back in February. I've been very happy with the shave. I haven't used a competing brand since. You know, I think you're going to agree that it's a, it's a high-quality shave at a fraction of the price. I think if you head over to harrys.com slash Sixersbeat, you can get $5 off of a, a trial set right now. Give it a shot. If you don't like it, you can yell at me on Twitter about it. Um, I'm opening myself up to that. But I think if you give it a shot, then... uh then I think you're going to enjoy it and agree that you can get high quality without paying an arm and a leg for it. So once again, that's harrys.com slash Sixersbeat. All right, now let's get on to the show. Like I said, first up, Kevin Pelton. Uh, I'm excited about the show. I think there's a lot of good insight that these guys have to offer. These are all guys that I respect quite a bit and that I think have valuable perspective on the on Markel Fultz and what he's going to bring. So let's get right on into it. All right, I'm now joined by Kevin Pelton, an NBA analyst for ESPN Insider co-host of the Basketball Analogy Podcast, also has his own PeltonCast podcast. Uh, just reading that off and seeing the, the amount of work that you're doing, I'm a little intimidated by the, the quantity of work while maintaining the quality that you're able to put out there. But thank you for taking time out of your busy day, and uh, thanks for joining me, and how you doing? I'm doing well, and look, no one uh, no one should pale in comparison to the amount of work that you do. <laughs> The, uh, yeah. the, the podcast right. is kind of just a fun diversion that I do with my brother about Seattle sports, but now suddenly relevant to the good people of Philadelphia. There you go. It it very much is, which is, is funny that 
Washington has been so relevant to the NBA draft of late and would have been if they didn't make that change at coach and so irrelevant in terms of the NCAA tournament. But that's a kind of a different podcast. Um, all right, I guess let's start it off. Obviously, if you're living under a rock, the Sixers have traded for the number one pick. So that changes, you know, from the time I asked you if you would be willing to come on to now, the scope of this podcast has changed very considerably. So you've written a number of articles on ESPN uh, from everything from the value of the number one pick in relation to other top five picks to, you know, the um, grading the deal to, you know, even talking about the fit a little bit. So let's start off real, real broadly with your general thoughts on the trade, whether it was smart for the Sixers and how you rate Markel Fultz as a prospect. So, yeah, so I think, you know, there's kind of. Well, clearly there's two perspectives on this trade, which is how the Celtics front office viewed it and how the Sixers front office viewed it. And in the eyes of the Celtics front office, not that big of a difference between the guy we're going to get at number one and the guy we're going to get at number three. You know, there were reports last week that they were maybe even considering Josh Jackson with the number one pick. And, you know, we'll see whether Jason Tatum is still in the mix for them at number three. And so if we can still get that guy and get, you know, this valuable draft pick at some point in either 2018 or 2019. I mean, that's, you know, that's something we basically have to do. From Philadelphia's standpoint, clearly they were viewing it as Markel Fultz is far and away the best player in this draft, and then also a better fit with our other talent than anyone we can get at number three, which, you know, is a completely valid perspective. I mean, I think that was a big challenge for them when they ended up at number three. There are worse challenges to have, but you know, no, whoever was going to be the best prospect there was probably not going to be someone who fit ideally with their other talent. Um, so, you know, if you project, if you look at kind of the typical gap between the number one and the number three pick, um, and, you know, I put together some additional research on the, I'd, I'd looked in the past about the difference between the surplus value those guys provide above and beyond their contract over their rookie contract and built a trade value chart based on that. But the thing I wasn't factoring in that is somewhat relevant to this is, you know, what value do those guys provide beyond their rookie contract by the fact that if you draft a superstar player, you know, you're going to be able to underpay him on their rookie extension. Uh, so I added that in, created a new draft trade chart, and that showed that the difference between the first and third pick on average is about equivalent to the 13th pick in the draft. So, you know, there's not really any question that, the, the I mean, not any question, but in all likelihood, the pick that the Sixers gave up will be better and probably substantially better than the 13th pick. Uh, the If you go strictly by my ratings this year for Markel Fultz and Josh Jackson and assume those are the guys at one and three, the difference between them is much larger than the typical you know first and third pick. And now all of a sudden, the equivalent trade value between those two guys is the fifth pick. And the fifth pick, now you're starting to talk about that's kind of on the borderline of where the, the pick is probably going to end up, especially since we know that the Sixers can't give up the number one pick in this trade no matter what happens. So uh, I, I think, you know, that's where it, it starts to make sense, I think, for both sides and to be something of a win-win trade. Yeah, and I mean, you, you, you mentioned rankings of the two guys that were really in play in Fultz and, and Jackson, and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're Stats only big board doesn't quite have faults at number one, but he's still high. I think it's number four. And traditionally, when you've you've mentioned this in the past, when it's on the scouting big board, you're high on the scouting big board. 
you're high on a stats big board, the projection is usually pretty positive. Uh, whereas Jackson, I know, is is much lower in those stats. I guess we'll go to to Fultz and kind of what these statistics. Uh, I I can speak. I promise. What these statistics say for his projection, and maybe what's what's maybe a red flag to look for in terms of what he has to improve upon. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons that Fultz is rated so highly is the fact that there aren't really any red flags from a statistical standpoint. Uh, I, I look at, you know, kind of 10 key categories, like two-point percentage, then a rating for shooting, then factors in both three-point and free-throw percentage, rebounding, assist rate, so on and so forth. And, you know, there's not any of those categories where he's in the bottom 25% of NBA-bound point guards in terms of those projections, uh, despite the fact that, you know, he is – incredibly young for a draft pick. And, and that's one of the nice things about him relative to Jackson, who's relatively old for a one and done prospect. So, you know, I think the one concern I would have with him that, you know, might keep him from being elite is, is the fact that he wasn't a great finisher at the college level. He only made, you know, somewhere around 60% of his uh, attempts that were marked as at the, around the basket, according to uh, hoopmath.com, which tracks this sort of thing. So, you know, if the three-point shooting doesn't come, which, you know, the still a little bit of a question mark, then, you know, if he's not a great finisher either, maybe he struggles to be an efficient scorer. He's more of a volume shot creator in the NBA. I think that's that's probably the single biggest concern I would say I have about faults. Well, I guess that kind of leads into the next question. What What are your thoughts on his shooting profile and your confidence in him becoming you know, a, a, an above league average, a 35, 37% type of shooter at the very least. Yeah, I mean, he's fascinating because of the fact that I've, I've written in the past about, you know, college free throw percentage tends to project your, your three-point percentage in the NBA slightly better even than your three-point shooting in college because of the, partially because of the fact that you have a larger sample size usually to work with. That isn't the case this year with Lonzo Ball, who took, I think, a lot more threes than free throws. Yeah. And then also, I think, you know, it probably reflects something about just kind of your inherent ability as a shooter, your form, that sort of thing. So the fact that he was a poor free throw shooter is a concern. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, from a mechanical standpoint, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in, in terms of determining that, but, you know, he's, he shoots a very easy ball from the college three point line. I, I think, you know, he, he clearly has worked very hard to become a good three point shooter. So I, I think the odds are that he will be, you know, a, an above average, an average or better three point shooter in the NBA, but, uh, do have to project, you know, there's a, a wide range of possible outcomes there. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and figuring out where in that range falls, I think is, I guess that a little kind of follow up question. You said that free throws are a slightly better pr- projector. If you're talking where the sample size isn't as, as drastic, I guess how much of a better predictor are we to, because we're looking at it now. There's a lot of guys who shoot well from three, but have struggled from the free throw. And pretty much everyone at the top of this draft in a, a weird yeah. kind of way. And, and some guys you have like Ball who took like twice as many threes as free throws. Some guys like Fultz who took a, decent sample of both how much better is a is is free throw percentage as a predictor because i think there's a lot of people looking at the top of the draft and going oh man i don't know if any of these guys can shoot yeah i mean i haven't looked at specifically you know in in cases where you have a larger sample of threes and free throws whether that changes things i mean i think you know the group of players that i was looking at by default probably are you know the, the minimums i used when i did this study i think it was probably you know, something like 500 career threes and free throws. So even even guys who are one and done and shoot a lot of threes probably, yeah. you know, or 500 is probably too many, maybe 250 with the college schedule. Um, 
So even guys who are one and ones and shoot a lot of threes almost certainly didn't qualify for this study. And the, the other aspect of it is, you know, if you shoot the same number of free throws as threes, you're going to learn more about free throw percentage than three-point percentage because of the fact that, that that tends to settle more quickly. There's more – the, the free throw percentage you shoot reflects more of your skill over the same number of attempts than your three-point percentage does your skill of shooting threes. Right. I mean, three-point percentage can be role on the team, your teammates, quality of – like there's – it's a lot – it's and, a lot and, more of a moving target, I guess. And just pure randomness. I mean, yeah. nobody saw that better than Sixers fans this year with Robert Covington. Yes. And we got into many debates for that, too. Indeed. Okay. So you have all this. You know, your model had a slight overpay. You like Fultz. He's a second on the board and in, in, in kind of combined fourth on statistics. You talk about fit. You take everything into account. You know, do you think you ended up giving them a B anyway? Do you think they ultimately overpaid? And is that a deal where you think it's going to come back and, and kind of bite them in the long run? Well, it's certainly a risk for both sides. I mean, if Fultz turns out to be that superstar and this, you know, pick that's coming from Lakers, Kings, or Sixers ends up, you know, maybe outside the top 10, then, you know, that there's, there's a huge risk from Boston's standpoint that we just gave away this incredible prospect for not that much in return. You know, the Sixers' risk is that this does become an elite pick and that, you know, Fultz is a good prospect but not a super elite one who is worth giving up so much to move up a couple of spots to go out and get. I, I think, you know, it's both teams I would have made this deal. That And the framework that I like to use when I'm grading trades is, you know, if it's completely neutral in terms of your long-term future, I give that a C. Anything better than that means I would have done this trade. So even though one team gets a better grade, and in, in this case it was the Celtics, you know, I still think it's it's a deal I would have done as both sides. It's impossible to really look at the trade without looking at what you passed up. In the Sixers' case, you know, Boston, you you mentioned that you know if Fultz turns into a superstar, they could really regret that. But obviously, the Sixers' case, if Jackson ends up becoming a superstar, or Tatum, or whoever, whoever have you, ends up being a superstar, then giving up additional assets is obviously the wrong move. What are your thoughts on Josh Jackson, his concern projecting the NBA level, and whether or not you know he's he's a guy that you really should be worried about him becoming kind of this guy that you regret passing on. So as you alluded to earlier, he uh, he was outside the top 10 of my stats only projections, actually, you know, fairly substantially outside. He, he ranks in the 30s uh, in, in that category. And, you know, there's certainly a chance of those guys working out when they get drafted in the top 10. You, you come up with some all-stars, but it's not as good of a chance historically if, is if they uh, score in the top 10 by metrics. Uh, it's interesting because in some ways, you know, Jackson is the kind of player that my projections usually like really good steal rate, pretty good block rate. And those are two factors that are, are often important, often help explain why guys rate differently in my projections than, you know, kind of the conventional wisdom about their, their ability. In his case, you know, I think the age is one factor. The fact that, you know, he was really, he's really more comparable to a sophomore than he is to a freshman in terms of age. Uh, the fact, you know, his efficiency offensively because of the fact that he his three-point percentage, his three-point shooting is even more questionable than, than Fultz's uh, is a factor in it. And, you know, kind of a high turnover rate because of the fact that he was playing this, this large role offensively. I mean, I think from a more subjective standpoint, you know, 
the the question you were always going to ask with him is would he be able to space the floor well enough to play off the ball on a team that already has Ben Simmons who's going to handle the ball quite a bit and uh, I I completely see the the Sixers skepticism there uh, defensively I think you know he's he's got the potential to be really quite good and if the shooting comes around that's where he's got that star potential but it definitely is going to have to be you know more improvement than I think would be typical of a player like Josh Jackson in terms of shooting. Yeah, I mean, I've we we talked about Jackson ad nauseum on this podcast and in writing, and certainly I am not the most confident in that jump shot. And not having to take that gamble is is something I am a little bit um little bit happy about. One of the guy you do love, and he was a guy who I had second, so I, I liked him quite a bit. And his fit with the Sixers would have been really interesting. And as much as I love Fultz and trust me, I'm happy they made the trade. It would have been fascinating just to see that watch both on the court and off the court with maybe some uh, some family members who are, are very confident in their ability. <laughs> uh, but Lonzo Ball, number one on your stats board, and because he's then number two, he's, he's a number one rated prospect. Uh, his both projection and how you thought subjectively how that could have worked with the Sixers and with Ben Simmons specifically. Yeah, I mean, I, to, to answer the last part, First, I, I thought that would have been a really interesting fit because, you know, it's it, it's weird. I hear from people on Twitter like, oh, Alonzo Ball needs the ball in his hands all the time. Like he's this ball-dominant point guard. I'm like, did you watch him play at UCLA? Because that's not really what he did. Like he's fascinating because of the fact that he's not a – a great pick and roll threat because of his difficulty, you know, shooting off the dribble and the the fact they didn't get to the basket a ton, you know, just out of the operate out of the pick and roll. He did a lot in transition as a cutter and things like that. Uh, you know, I think he projects is a slightly better shooter than Fultz going forward. He shot, you know, the the volume of threes was a little bit better at the free throw line. The the range that he has, it'll be an easier adjustment for him to the NBA three. I think all of those things are encouraging. Even though Fultz will probably is probably more likely to be able to shoot the three off the dribble, which is a really important skill. And then I just there's. You know, the thing that stood out to me early on watching Ball was like everything he does, there's not a lot of wasted energy. It's either you're attacking the basket or you're swinging the ball to someone else who will in the UCLA offense. And I thought that would have been really interesting if he's, you know, the, the, guy, on the, the guy on the weak side, well, Simmons and Embiid, let's say, are running a pick and roll. So, you know, you over, get the defense to overload the strong side, swing it back to ball, and let him make a decision, whether that's attacking a closeout or finding someone else. I, I, I thought that could have been a really good role for him. Yeah, he uh, was – I'm sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, yeah. You, I was just going to say, he was he was fun to debate because there were people on every side. And I, I had one radio appearance where I came on right after Steve Alford. And they were like, well, you know, he doesn't he, he thinks that, that Lonzo's going to need the ball in his hands. He doesn't think it's going to work. I'm like, what can I say? I think Steve's wrong. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's a fascinating debate to have because I was right with you. He had like a 16% usage rate, and it's not like he ever really dominated the ball either. He didn't need to hold the ball to create scoring opportunities for his teammates. I did have confidence in him shooting off the catch, which was important for for playing next to Simmons. And he was really an elite cutter, which is kind of odd to say for a point guard. But he played so much off ball at UCLA that it would have been it would have been fun. I do think I like Fultz better as a prospect, but he was number two, and he would have been he would have been real fun to just watch unfold. If only we had, could have a scenario where we got to you know watch both of those play out and, yeah. and compare how they actually went. So, Ball is a prospect overall. I think. 
you know, he is, I think he's got a wider range of possible outcomes than false because of the fact that, you know, if it doesn't work and he can't rejigger his uh, shooting motion to be able to shoot off the dribble going right, like, I, I don't know how he works as a pick and roll point guard in the NBA. And that's by far the most efficient form of offense in the league. So, you know, if you take that off the table, like that's, that's a major concern for him. And, uh, you know, I, how he fits in, uh, I, I think, you know, as a teammate and as part of a system is a bit of a question mark. But at the same time, he's got these strengths, his his court vision, his pattern recognition, you know, ability to play in transition, all of that, I, I think, you know, makes him potentially a special prospect and is why for most teams I probably would have favored ball over faults. It does seem like a step back. 26-foot contested three. It does seem like there's a a limit to how many times you can get away doing that, but by the same token, he got away with that a lot at UCLA. And I'm with you. I love love decision makers. I love guys who can instinctively read those rotations and make quick and accurate decisions. He's going to be fun, and I thought his fit with the Sixers was was better than most. It would have, I mean, like I said, it would have been fun. I just, you know, being able to get a a little bit of a safer prospect, I would say, in Fultz is, is... is going to be a blast too, and who knows if if Ball would have even been there at three, which I still am not entirely convinced. But we'll see. We'll see what happens on a, on Thursday. All right, moving down in the draft a little bit because it, I could I could talk about Lonzo Ball for an hour, but that seems a little a, a little irresponsible considering he doesn't matter anymore really. Also, I like I like that you you like Jonathan Isaac too. I liked him a ton, but again, that doesn't matter, so we'll skip him. Uh, moving down to there's rumors that the Sixers will. Um, look, move back into the first round, and if not, they have 36 and 39 anyway, plus two more second round picks. I guess a couple of guys that um, guys that you like that are maybe a little bit sleepers that you consider should be a little higher rated. And I guess one I'm going to throw out there because of his uh, locale is, is Josh Hart. But other guys you think could really should be valued higher and wouldn't would fit in well with the Sixers. Well, he would be tr- probably be tops on my list, Josh Hart, anyway. So it, it works out very conveniently. I mean, you know, from a production standpoint, uh, he really stands out in this year's draft as, you know, one of a couple of older players who projects really well by my metrics. And part of the reason for that is, you know, one of the things that I found in my research is that kind of earlier guys who peak late in their college career tend to often be disappointing in the NBA. But even if you're an older player, if you were really good early on in your college career, that tends to translate pretty well. So Hart, you know, was very good as a sophomore, even if not as good as he ended up becoming as a senior when he was one of the five best players in the country. Uh, so that that fate works well in his projections. And then, you know, you just look at his skill set. It's the kind of skill set that, assuming his three-point shooting translates, that should fit really well into a defined three and D type role in the NBA. So, you know, definitely I think, you know, if he's still out there in the twenties and, you know, the, the, I mean, you know, maybe the Sixers, he's still out there when, when they get on the board in the second round, they don't even need to move up to go get him. But, you know, I think he would be someone who would make a lot of sense as a target for them because, you know, you're, you're probably looking at that, even though they have, you know, Covington and, and, uh, and the hyphen and uh, and the other <laughs> Justin Anderson and the prospects uh, TLC the uh, prospects they have as far as three and D guys like you can never have enough of those when you have the other talent that they have right now. All right, let's see one second. I guess one guy I wanted to ask you about specifically because as someone who watched him in high school and then watched him at Duke, I have no idea what to make of him. And you look at everything from the low playing time to coming back off that ACL. What in the world do you make of Harry Giles? 
Yeah, you know, that's that's really one of the he's probably the single toughest player for me to rank in this year's draft. I sort of, I think Chad Ford, we did a podcast is going to be out at some point here. Chad kind of talked me into him. He said that, uh, you know, teams have been reporting that he's looked terrific in individual workouts. And then, yeah, I mean, he was, he was way ahead of Markel Fultz when you were ranking high school guys. He was ahead of Lonzo Ball. He was, you know, almost certainly at the top of this class. Maybe, you know, Josh Jackson, some people would have might have preferred him to Giles. But, you know, when he was healthy, nobody had more potential. And, yeah, I'm starting to buy that, you know, he's someone who in the, the in the back half of the lottery, you know, in the late lottery, uh, the, the, the potential outweighs the risk in terms of drafting him. But statistically, I don't know that I can say almost anything about him because of the fact that his year at Duke seems like largely a wash. Really, one of the more fascinating because I can't, I can't, I can't remove the picture I have of him, you know, competing at some of these shoe camp tournaments with what I saw at Duke. Like it's just, it's not the same player. It will be fun to watch his career unfold. I hope, knock on wood, he has a little bit of health going forward. All right, I think that's probably a good spot. Like I said, there's so much focus on on Markel Fultz that the next couple of days will be fun. But thank you for. Jumping on, Kevin, everybody follow him on Twitter at KPelton. Go subscribe to ESPN Insider. If you're listening to this podcast, then I hope that you're willing to subscribe to good content, and there's certainly a lot of good content on there. But thank you for jumping on, and uh, thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. There he goes. Once again, that was Kevin Pelton, NBA analyst for ESPN Insider. You're probably already following him on Twitter, if not at KPelton. Next up is going to be Mike Schmitz, my colleague, one of the best in the business at breaking down tape and displaying it to you in the form of draft express scouting videos and follow him on twitter at mike underscore schmitz and uh and let's get on to the interview all right welcome everybody i am now joined by mike schmitz uh the what is it director of scouting is that your official title at draft express and the vertical i Um, guess so man he if you have watched a video on youtube you've probably seen him uh he his work is fantastic I think everybody watches it. Um, everybody references it. They're the best videos out there. But thanks for jumping on. And a guy who has been constantly traveling to go to workouts and go overseas, so his perspective is going to be going to be fantastic. Unfortunately, when I initially booked you, we had a wide swath of prospects to talk about, and now we have a single prospect to really focus on. I say unfortunately, it's not really unfortunate because it's a great position sure. to be in. But I guess I'm just going to leave this wide open. Tell me why. Markel Fultz is the right fit with Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid. Yeah, I think, you know, my main concern with Simmons specifically initially was just, okay, he doesn't space the floor and he's not, doesn't give you a ton defensively. I think he has good feet and instincts there, but my whole thing was, all right, I mean, he's going to need to almost function as a five in some ways offensively, just in that he gives you no spacing. So he needs to be next to a five. Um, who can stretch the four and a five who can protect the rim. Um, Joel Embiid is that guy. And then he needs to, you know, have a point guard who's really comfortable, I think, playing off the ball as well, um, you know, can spot shoot, can play off of closeouts. Uh, and, and I think Fultz is that guy also. So to me, it's really a perfect fit, um, you know, with those three in, in terms of, you know, having multiple guys who can handle the ball, I think what they can do in pick and roll is going to be really, really interesting, especially with even, you know, Simmons with the ball as, as Embiid with the, as a screener or even Fultz as a screener. Um, I think they can just do a lot of different things. And, 
And, uh, you know, Fultz is really, I think, a guy who could work anywhere just because he is so versatile. He can play off the ball. He can create a shot. He's really good in pick and roll. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, Philly fans and, you know, the Sixers really struck gold with this. So I guess, is there anybody that you would have considered with the number one pick, either for the Sixers or for anybody else, or is this pretty much a slam dunk choice in your mind? I think it's a slam dunk, but I also thought that Lonzo Ball actually would have been a really interesting fit um, with Philly just because uh, some of the things I mentioned, like Lonzo might even be better off the ball than Markel um, because at least with Markel, his main value to me is he's a guy who can really dice you up and pick and roll, and he's a really good off-the-dribble shooter. Um, I like him kind of late clock, ball screen, you know, seven seconds or less type of situation in the half court, whereas Lonzo... He has a lot of value as a catch-and-shoot guy. Um, he's really instinctual, kind of playing off of closeouts. He, he's always moving the ball. You know, he, the ball doesn't stick with him. He's not a guy who needs to pound it. So, you know, in some sense, I think he would have been a really good fit as well. I, I like Markel more as a prospect um, overall, but I thought, you know, if, if Ball were to have slipped to three when the Sixers were still there, I thought that would have been a really interesting fit. Yeah, and I think he was a name that I think probably had the widest range of opinions. Like, I feel like a lot of people just saw him, saw that passing was his elite skill, saw that he was a point guard and said that's not going to work. Right. And even Steve Alford was on a radio station around here and said that, like, he's going to need a ball in his hands. And I went on after him, or a couple hours after him, and I'm like, look, I think Steve Alford's wrong. I think they would have been a, a tremendous fit. It would have been real fun to watch. He was kind of the guy I was hoping would fall to three because I had more confidence in his shot and I thought that they would have, I mean, like you said, him attacking closeouts, ball making quick reads, maybe playing against an unset defense. I think he could have maximized his strength, strengths while limiting his weaknesses. But I think Fultz is so much of a better prospect. This is, this is a very easy decision for me as well. All right, I think two of the concerns, slight concerns people have with Fultz, and I don't think anybody has any real major concerns except for maybe the defense, which we'll get to. But some concern over his his shooting. I think one thing you could probably say is he could speed up his release on his catch and shoot maybe a tiny bit. But how much confidence do you have in that jump shot translating to the NBA level and the NBA distance? Yeah, I have quite a bit of confidence. I think it's going to take him a little bit of time, though. Um, he's never shot really like the cleanest ball. I mean, in, in high school even, he was he was more of a streaky guy. He's always been kind of more of like, a shot maker than, than a pure shooter. Like he doesn't shoot it. Like he's one of these guys who is comfortable making shots off balance, just as comfortable making shots off balance as he is, you know, with space uh, and a wide open spot up, you know? So um, I think he's always going to be, you know, not uh, an inconsistent shooter, but you know, there are going to be times when he misses some open spots that you would expect him to make, but then he's going to drill a 28-foot step-back pull-up, you know. So um, I think it's going to take him a little bit of time, but he has a lot of touch. He clearly is a worker. Um, so I'm not all that concerned, but I think there will be a learning curve there. All right, and the other main concern people have is his defense, and it was obviously a tough environment in Washington that maybe didn't have quite the attention to detail on that end of the court. But I think one of the takeaways I had was that, especially the U18s, but even some of the other tournaments, how would you rate his, or I guess the way I would phrase this, how would you have rated his defensive potential before this season at Washington? I thought tremendous. 
Uh, he has an unbelievable frame. He's really instinctual. He has a 6'10 wingspan. I mean, he can, I think eventually he's going to be a guy who can even guard some threes if he's willing, you know, just it, given some of the three, you know, some of the way teams are playing now with, with almost three guards, um, in the backcourt. So I, I thought his potential was really, really good to be a two way guy. Um, you know, he still did float a little bit at times. I think before Washington, it wasn't, you know, just a Washington thing, but as you kind of alluded to the situation there in terms of discipline and, and holding these guys accountable defensively, I mean, it was almost a joke in, in my eyes. And, um, so I think Markel, you know, has some bad habits that I think are going to need to be addressed. And, you know, I hope that w- it, Philly is going to be winning enough and in enough competitive situations where he's going to have to turn that up a notch and, and those, uh, you know, bad habits don't continue to, to culminate and manifest. But to me, um, has a lot of potential, just going to need a little bit of time there. Knowing what you know about, you know, kind of his career path, if he has to share some of the shot creation and the limelight with a guy like Simmons, and it's one thing if you're saying, you know, how are you going to maximize his skill set? We can debate that. But do you think just from a, you know, from a personality standpoint, is he okay maybe sharing that that uh, focal point with another I, guy? I think absolutely. I think that's one of the better things about him is that he is a really, really unselfish kid. And it's part of the reason I, I like that he's a late bloomer. I like that he, you know, wasn't this unanimous number one guy since he was in diapers. You know what I mean? I like I think there's something to that for these guys. Um, and if you watch him at Washington, I mean, he was not a pig. You know, he, he tried to play the right way. You know, his numbers are clearly very efficient. Um, so I don't think that's going to be an issue for him. You know, even when he was out, you know, when he kind of shut it down toward the end of the year, like this is a guy who's up on his feet cheering for guys. He's getting guys waters during during breaks. Like he's just little things like that. I think he's an unselfish guy at heart. Um, and you know, he didn't go to Washington to, to be like the only guy on a losing team. Um, you know, they were on him when he was really nothing and he stayed loyal to them. Um, and he was expecting to play with, you know, Chris and, and, uh, DeJounte Murray. So, you know, uh, that's a long winded answer, but in short, I, I don't think that'll be an issue. All right. I think, I think all of that pretty much lines up with what I thought, but it was good to hear. Because you're you're around so many events and so many people, it's always good to get that perspective. Moving down in the draft a little bit, the Sixers right now have four second-round picks. There's talk about they might be looking to trade up into the, the late sec, late first round as well. So I guess maybe a couple guys that you have been watching that you have your eye on that you think is a little undervalued and you think would be a good target with one of those picks. Yeah, I really like uh, Shemi Ojale from SMU. Uh, Duke transfer... You know, he just really fits what, what is working in the NBA to me. Um, you know, he, he's not one of these guys with a 7'2", 7'3", wingspan. He's not overly long. Um, and he almost looks like an, you know, NFL defensive end um, more than a basketball player. But he's 6'7", built like a tank. I mean, 245% body fat. He's one of the best conditions at, at, conditioned players in this draft. Um, but I just think with his ability to – Guard, I think he's going to be able to guard threes. I think he's going to be able to guard fours. And I think he's going to be able to really shoot the ball in the NBA level. So you have a guy who can space the floor, 
um, who can play off of closeouts a little bit and who's going to be able to defend, I think, a couple positions. So he has some areas to get better, but um, he's a kid I'm going to bet on all day long just because his mentality as well is extremely, extremely focused, big-time worker, knows what he is. Um, so I'm a fan of Shemi, and I also like Derek White a lot from Colorado. I think uh, really, really smooth with the ball, you know, can play off of it, can play on it, good in pick and roll, uh, great instincts as a passer. I think he's going to be an instant impact guy in the NBA. Yeah, he, he was a guy, and great story too, because he was so so unknown up until this this year when that transfer. Um, yeah, he would be a great fit, and I think a great fit with, with Simmons too, because he can do both those roles. All right, one final question, and I will let you get out of here. Knowing what you know about the Sixers and about Markel Fultz and obviously then Josh Jackson, the player they presumably gave up to get him, and about next year's draft, uh, the 2018 draft. Oh, I guess, first of all, do you have any strong opinions on Luka Doncic? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I went out to see him. Uh, it, it was kind of unfair to him because it was the early Final Four, yeah. huge game. And, I mean, this kid's 18 years old, barely 18 years old, you know, asked to do quite a bit in a game like that. So he really struggled. Um, so I didn't get a full, you know, him versus his peers type of eval. But I think he's going to be a really, really good NBA starter. I'm not sure he's going to be a star star. Um, I think, you know, by NBA standards, he's a decent athlete, not a great athlete. Um, but, again, he's 6'8". He's tough-minded. He can really pass. He can shoot it. So to me, he's going to be a really, really good NBA starter for a long time, potential all-star, but I'm not sure he's like a franchise guy. Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be fun to watch. I mean, he's playing on such a, such a good team in such a good league. But, you know, he made a good jump from, I think, maybe 10 minutes to 20 minutes this year. It'll be interesting to see what he does next year. Um, but just because the Sixers have that uh, top one protection on that pick, watching he and, and Porter Jr. will be It'll it'll give Sixers fans something to do in this draft as well. But going back to my original point before I got on the Doncic train, um, knowing what you know about next year's draft and about Markel Fultz and Josh Jackson, is this a trade that you personally would have made giving up the, the two picks, the number three pick, and then either the Lakers pick or the Kings pick for a guy like Markel Fultz? Yeah, I would have. Uh, I think that there's, to me, there's a, a very big difference in one and three this year. Um whether it's going to be, you know, Josh or Tatum or whoever, um, I think there's a pretty sizable gap. Uh, and I think, you know, if you put Fultz in, in next year's draft um, or you put, you know, Porter, get Porter a year in, in college and, and put him in this year's draft, you know, I think that's really close as well. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan of the trade. I think it makes a lot of sense for the Sixers. Cool. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you quite a bit for jumping on. Uh, talk to you soon. Keep up the great work. and. Um... Hopefully you'll get a day off soon. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. Thanks a lot, Derek. I appreciate it, man. Take care. All right, and once again, that was Mike Schmitz, at Mike underscore Schmitz. Next up, we have Cole Zwicker, and here we go. All right, welcome, everybody. I am now joined by Cole Zwicker. Uh, he contributes for the Step Back, 16 Wins, wins a Ring, and the What's on Draft podcast, which he co-hosts, along with, uh, with Mark Whittington of Liberty Ballers. But how you doing, Cole? Doing well, man. I'm already accused of kind of being a closet Sixers fan, so I guess talking <laughs> to the leader of the clubhouse is only going to further that rep. But I'm doing well. Well, it's uh, you know what? There there might be one or two people on the bandwagon now because even if they're not good, <laughs> they will be damn entertaining. Hopefully, so. Oh yeah. All right, let's get uh, let's get right into it. 
the news came down Friday that the the talks were ongoing for the Sixers to get the number one pick. It eventually became, you know what, I think it was Saturday night where it became reported that it was done, and then it became official on Monday. So looking at, I guess we'll start it off first with, you know, Markel Fultz. First of all, do you agree that he was the top prospect in this draft? How set in that belief were you? And then how does he fit with the Sixers? So I'll just kind of open it up with one large large question like that, and I'll let you just go. Sure. I mean, I had him in his own tier at the top. There was nothing that really overted me from that position throughout the process. I do feel like he is head and shoulders the best prospect in this class. He might not be a transcendent franchise caliber talent that you, that you sometimes find at the number one pick, like a Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis type. But I do think he's a solid number one pick. As far as his fit with the Sixers, I, I think that Sixers really just doubled down on their primary initiator equity, right? I mean, we don't know what, what Simmons is quite yet. We haven't seen enough of him, but he profiles that way, of course. He can handle the ball, play on ball. I think that Markell is more adept off ball that he gets credit for. I think he was 23 of 60 on catch and shoots in the half court this past season at Washington. I mean, if you watch his tape, he looks pretty fluid shooting. There's some mechanical issues at times as far as shooting on the way down, but I think he's going to fit in well. And there's just a lot of ways they can use these guys versatility-wise. So I, I really like what they did, and uh, they kind of just certified. It's so hard to get primary, primary handling, playmaking talent, and just having two of those guys now, and they might not even be your best players. It's a hell of a core, man. We haven't seen something like this since Oklahoma City. Yeah, and I mean, that's one people always go back to, and I had that asked me today, like, can you compare it to that? And there's, it's really tough to compare anything to what they did in that three- or four-year stretch. That was pretty unique, but it is, I mean, you compare it to some of the other ones, it's certainly it's certainly up there. I I think, uh, well, let's go ahead and, and back, I guess, back it up a little bit to Ben Simmons as well. One of the big debates in Philadelphia was Fultz or Simmons. If they were in this draft, who would you take? And I think it's it's... Tough. I think some people would go for the upside and the uniqueness of Simmons. And I think there's a lot of people, like Markel Fultz, I feel like you can just take him, drop him on pretty much any team with any personnel in any system, and he's going to find success. So I think maybe Fultz is a little bit safer, Simmons a little bit more upside, or at least more unique. Where do you fall in that argument? I think that's really well put. That's kind of echoes my thoughts as far as Fultz with the shooting is a, is a bit easier to project into the NBA as far as fit. Uh, he just you can drop him into pretty much any system if you believe in his ability to shoot off the ball. He can be either your primary initiator. He can work off ball a little bit. Simmons is more you have to pigeonhole into a specific role, but his upside I think is more valuable as a like a seven foot kind of initiator. We just don't see many of these guys come around. Ideally, he'd be able to shoot respectively and actually take shots from range. And I'm not sure if he has like any kind of Giannis upside as far as getting to the rim and finishing at a high level. He's not he doesn't have that kind of length extension or like long strides to do that, but maybe he improves there. I just think that Simmons' diversity as far as being able to be utilized as a role man, like we'll talk about with the fit with Markel and Embiid, the upside is probably a little bit higher uh, if everything goes right for him. But Fultz is j- just because of the shooting, Fultz is a little bit safer. Yeah, no, I I think I agree there. It was a it was a fun debate because it almost gets into how you view team building and risk uh, as much as it is player evaluation. Uh, but they certainly both have their merits. I kind of always said I, I put them in, in kind of the same tier. Uh, yep. Like I said, with Simmons, maybe a little more upside, but uh, more certainty in Fultz. If you're looking at Fultz, I think people have two ma- major questions. You kind of brought up the shooting. And, you know, you're you're confident in his shooting both off the dribble, which I think most people are, and off the catch, which he he barely did at Washington because dog shit. Um <laughs> But then a lot of people also have questions about his defense. And I guess, what did you see either Washington or beforehand to give you confidence? Because clearly he has the physical tools, but to give you confidence that maybe he could overcome some of his habits that he developed. 
I mean, he's a U18 tape uh, in FIBA play. He had good anticipation skills. You saw a lot of getting in the passing lanes, a lot more like trying on ball as far as getting steals goes. I know some people that are at the Houston Team USA practices, and they came away really impressed with his defense there. Obviously, he's a long strider. He doesn't have great short area quickness. So I question his ability to defend kind of point of attack, navigate screens quickly. He just doesn't have those short, choppy steps. But Washington is notorious for bad defensive projection. I mean, they overextend on the perimeter when they actually play man defense. They get back cut a lot, and they play a lot of 2-3 zone. And it's just hard to stay engaged in those kinds of systems. So I think that the the reality of his defense is probably somewhere in between the, of those two tails, the Washington tape and the FIBA tape. He's, he projects to be okay. I don't think he's going to be a liability, right? I mean, he's, he's got a good frame. He's strong. He's got good length at 6'10". So I think he can switch a little bit, and that's going to be his main kind of driving force man's value defensively, maybe not the quickness defending point guards, but the ability to switch, the ability to play off the ball, and it will allow someone like TLC potentially to, you know, defend point of attack with his better agility. And Fultz would just play off ball, still be able to contest wings and contain on switches as far as in the post. He can hold his position and absorb contact, defending in isolation, kind of moving backwards. So I, I like his defensive upside as far as not being a liability. Maybe he's not uh, a defensive plus, but we rarely see defensive pluses from the league guard position. You have Chris Paul, who's like a plus two defensive real plus minus guy. You just don't see very many guys that have impact defen- defensive ability. You're more looking for non-liabilities, and I think that uh, Fultz fits that profile. Yeah, and may- maybe when he's not creating, you know, with a 36% usage rate or whatever it was, and maybe Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid help him a little bit, you know, save energy just a tad. But certainly with what he was tasked to do at Washington, that would have been tough. You brought up the zone defense, which I thought I thought was interesting because if I remember correctly, they play almost a third of their possessions were in a zone last year, which is a a really high number. It is sometimes tough to make that projection, and Washington does not have the greatest track record of uh, of defensive fundamentals with their guards, not of recent history at least. All right, so if you're looking at him, I guess how would you envision an offense with Simmons and Embiid working? Do you see one of them kind of? primary are they co-primary how what kind of sets do you think would work like they seem really interesting in the fact that you could run almost any set out of it you could run a 1-4 pick and roll a 4-1 pick and roll a 4-5 pick and roll it just seems like there's a lot you can do with that (laughs) I mean again you're hitting the nail on the head here of course um the diversity it's not people look at this too rudimentary and being like oh they have to trade off possessions right it's either Simmons or it's Fultz trade off initiating the offense I think there's much more interchangeability you can use Simmons as a, a screener as in like a 1-4 pick and roll setting, if you trap Fultz, conceptually, his ability to shoot off the dribble, a guy would have to chase over the top. If you have like a big jump out on him, Simmons can can like split that and then have a four-on-three opportunity, play make on short rolls. And I think that's where Simmons is really going to be valuable in, in those kinds of settings. That's kind of his fallback if like this whole primary initiator thing doesn't work out because of the shooting. I think he just brings immense upside as a creator, as a playmaking four type. So there's a lot of different ways you can do that. I mean, of course, MB can space out, be on the three-point line in that setting and provide some kind of spacing. We'll see if teams respect him there, but he's at least shown the capable ability to do that. Simmons, of course, can run a 4-5 pick and roll with Embiid, and then Fultz can space on the weak side. It just kind of depends on the, the ancillary pieces as far as, like, Covington. I mean, he's developed a little bit as a shooter. He's respectable now. He can do a little bit off the dribble. And then that fifth starter, whoever that is, if they say, sign somebody in free agency, like a KCP, for example, or if TLC improves enough to space the floor, I think there's there's just a lot of versatile options there with three kind of primary guys who can all not really initiate because big men, it's hard for big men to initiate offense, but he can definitely you can run an offense through and beat in the post and kind of design sets, getting him in space on pick and pop. So there's just a lot of diversity in that lineup. 
Yeah, and I mean, they they certainly tried to run a lot of offense through Embiid last year. I don't know if that was you know, so much a strategy to work or just to kind of force feed him because he had so little experience. But having him on the move a lot more this year should be fun. And I agree with you. You can you have so many options that you can really take what a defense gives you. It will be it will be really fun. And I hope you know you. I think the one thing you always worry about these are human beings. These are kids with expectations and egos. And maybe one isn't getting the ball enough. But there's nothing nothing I have seen in Fultz's past to suggest he would have any kind of a problem sharing this kind of a load. I agree. He's an unselfish player. I think that's something that has to be hammered home is just because he had this high usage. He did try to pass at Washington. It's just every time he tried to, you know, pass other guys, they ended up getting boat raced if he didn't take shots. So I, I do think he's an unselfish guy. He's a score first guy, but a pass first second guy, and he has that kind of vision and creativity as a passer. Uh, if you, you looked at his functional athleticism and how much that unleashes some of his – you know, his passing angles, like he just had ridiculous wraparound passes coming off like a double crossover spin move. There's just a lot to work with there that I think got underplayed. And, of course, you have the transition with these guys as far as both of those guys' ability to throw outlet passes. Simmons just being that chaos creator in transition. There's just a lot of a lot of upside with this team. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the functional athleticism because I get some feedback that he's not an elite athlete. And I think that really depends on how you define an elite athlete. Yes. He's not a Russell Rusbrook who's going to throw it down in transition or in traffic like that. But if you talk about body control and footwork and, you know, just ability to maintain a, a live dribble in traffic, he is incredible at certain aspects of, of important aspects, believe it or not, of basketball. He is a, he is fun to watch. I can't, I can't wait. Um, all right, let's Definitely. transition off of him a little bit and focus on the guys they passed up or presumably will pass up if they still take Josh Jackson at number one. It's going to be quite the doozy. But guys that they passed up by <laughs> making this trade, what were your thoughts on Josh Jackson? Um, I guess Lonzo Ball, now with today's news, we're recording this just after uh, just after the news came out that the Lakers have traded D'Angelo Russell. But, you know, Josh Jackson, Lonzo Ball, Jason Tatum, those kind of guys as fits on the Sixers. Because, like I said, you're by evaluating the win or loss of a trade, you're also kind of evaluating what they passed up. Yeah, Josh was the trickiest fit for me. I have him personally number six on my board. I just think going back and watching the tape and looking for what translates, there was a lot of diciness in the half court especially and if you're going to put him with MB or with Embiid and with Simmons especially I just think you're going to you're going to mitigate and limit your spacing upside especially with Covington in the lineup too there's just a lot of you know dicey shooting bets and you know non-threats there so I, I get like the, the extra ball movement Jackson would have provided but a lot of his value at the next level is going to come in like secondary handler uh, settings when and maybe in like a motion scheme where guys can get him on the move. That's kind of how Kansas negated his lack of explosive first step is getting him on those weave actions and those dribble handoffs. So I didn't think that the fit with Philly was ideal there. Ball for me was the best fit. That, that was his best fit in the draft was Philadelphia as far as being able to amplify both Simmons and MB. I think that's where he's going to see his value at the next level is making good talent great or great talent elite. And that was a great fit as far as him off ball, providing secondary creation, of course, pushing the ball in transition. So I like the ball's ability because obviously he can play off the ball much superior, faster than Jackson. That was the thing about this, this, this spot at three. Like there wasn't really an obvious fit. Like Dennis Smith for me would have been my preference if, if ball went two. And he still has some fit issues, of course. Uh, he didn't play a ton off ball. Uh, at NC State, he showed a little bit more than I think he's getting credit for as far as hitting open shots from NBA three, shooting a little bit on the move. But uh, that's still a more dicey proposition than Fultz, who's just a, a much safer prospect. Yeah, it's funny. I've gotten into a lot of a lot of debates on whether Lonzo Ball would have fit, and so far I've had 
Today I've had like a string of podcasts that I'm doing. I haven't even released anything yet. <laughs> but I had Mike Schmitz, Kevin Pelton, another guy from the Sixers, and Mike O'Connor, and you on. And everyone has agreed that he is a he, – he would have been – the Sixers would have probably been his best fit. And it's something that I've been arguing for a while. And just, I'm surprised at how many people – I'm surprised at how diverging of opinions there are and how many people – like that's been a real back and forth, and I've been a little bit surprised. I think a lot of people just see the passing and the point guard, and they assume that he has to dominate the ball. And that was the complete opposite of what his game was at uh, at UCLA. Exactly. In fact, he really played a lot off the ball with, with Holiday as well. Um, I thought one of his real elite skills for his position was as a cutter. And he could clearly shoot off the catch. Nobody knows if he's going to really be able to shoot off the dribble, or at least when it's not a 27-foot step back to his left. Uh, <laughs> it would have been a real... I, th- I think the Sixers were the right spot for him. And... I'm very happy with the trade, but he was the one that I was kind of hoping would fall because he was the only one that seemed to make any real sense to me at that spot. All right, let's yep. uh, let's see what else do we have here. You know, we we, we originally we were going to do this podcast on a Friday night, and then the news came out, but we weren't sure if the news was legitimate or not, so we had to reschedule it. And I had a whole bunch I wanted to ask you about the Aaron Fox and confidence in his jumper and <laughs> and all of these other guys, and it just it's completely irrelevant now. So let's shift focus a little bit. To later in the draft, Sixers right now have a bushel full of second round picks. They've got 36, 39, I think, what, 46 and 50. Might be off by a pick or two, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in that range. Talks that they might end up moving up to the late first round if they can. Is there anybody there that you think is underrated that you think would, uh, you know, would, would, would be a, a, a good value pick at that spot that you have a reasonable degree of confidence in? Yeah, I, I like Jordan Bell, of course, but I for the Sixers, I don't really like him, of course, because they have a lot of depth there, and they're not going to be able to play him ideally as a backup five because they already have a superior backup five in Rashawn Holmes and Jaleel Okafor, of course. So I, I would probably aim to take shots at two-way wings that kind of maybe would fit that fifth starter role potentially. I mean, you're probably not going to find that guy in the second round or late first, but it's just it, it's worth trying. So maybe a guy like Sterling Brown later on. I, I like his intensity as far as his competitiveness. His shooting stroke is one of the best in the draft, in my opinion. Athletically, I don't think he's great. I mean, he's probably on the fringe as far as wings go, but maybe he has enough to make up for it in – just how hard he tries. He has a 230-pound frame, you know, 6'10 wingspan. I, I think he has some some tools to work with, and in that range, that makes some sense for me. Derek White is a guy I really like as far as a rotation kind of combo shooter creator for others. I think he can do a lot of different things. I mean, we only have that one season of senior tape at Colorado, but, I mean, I hadn't seen him before. I put his tape on, and I was like, holy hell, this guy can play. Um, I, I just like his his skill level. And if he was there, I think he he just fits he fits a role. I mean, I know you guys have Corkmoss probably coming over if he does, and then diversity and depth with TLC and stuff like that. But it's it's worth a shot in that range with a guy like that. So those guys come to mind. Maybe Josh Hart as well as just uh, a guy who can have like a ten year career in the NBA. Maybe not that same caliber of upside. I don't see him really as like a Malcolm Brogdon type. He doesn't have that kind of burst with the ball, in my opinion. But in that range, you're just looking for a rotation-caliber player. Um, you're not going to find a lot of guys with high upside. So those are the guys that really stand out for me. Yeah, do they even have Colorado Springs game in Synergy? I don't even know if that's available, and Synergy has everything. Uh, yeah, I don't think a lot of people had a whole lot of Derek White tape before this year. <laughs> uh, I do agree. He would be a, a really interesting fit and a, a really good fit with you know Embiid and or Simmons and Fultz, too. I think that would be – I think he's going to end up going before 36. I think they'd have to move up. But I certainly agree with you there. I like Sterling Brown. There's almost something to those guys who have already played the role that you're going to ask them to play. 
and the yes. fact that he was never really a focal point offensively at SMU, I think he can probably slide in there and, and, and do what's going to be asked of him. I think he would be a an intriguing name as well. I do agree he's probably edge-ish in terms of athleticism, but he has a lot of other a lot of he checks a lot of other boxes in that role. Agreed. All right. Well, I think that's probably about it. Trying to keep this short and sweet. I saw you just released a big board over at Cat Strategist. It's one of the more detailed and thorough big board. It's not even how far did you get in it? It's like part one, right? <laughs> yeah, it's only one through seven. <laughs> and how many words was it? Uh, I think seventeen thousand. <laughs> that is perfect. I love that. That is my style of writing. I love it. If you want to get everything you need to know. About those seven guys, go to capstrategist.com. <laughs> Check out his Twitter, at Cole Zwicker, and thank you for jumping on. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. All right, and once again, that was Cole Zwicker, at Cole Zwicker on Twitter. He is one of my favorite, you know, relatively new guys that I follow regarding the NBA draft. He brings a, a fresh perspective and a whole lot of detail, and I think if you go follow him, read his work, I think you'll enjoy it. Next up is Mike O'Connor, M O'Connor underscore NBA. Uh, one of the real hidden gems, I think, in Sixers Twitter. Does a tremendous job with video breakdowns and kind of explaining the game. And again, if you're the type that listens to this podcast, I think you're going to really enjoy him. He's gotten some traction of late. Went from about 350 followers on Twitter a couple of weeks ago to a little bit over 1,000 now. He deserves 5 to 10 times more than that. So go follow him on Twitter. Like I said, I think you're really going to enjoy his perspective and the detail that he brings as well. Um, and he does a really good job, like I said, of explaining some of the intricacies of of plays and play types and player strengths, uh, go follow him at M O'Connor underscore NBA. All right, let's go talk to Mike. All right, welcome everybody. I am now joined by Mike O'Connor. He writes for the Sixers Sense. He writes for Basketball Breakdown or B-Ball Breakdown. Um, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Derek. How you doing? I'm doing well. Take two. Uh, yeah, we, take we recorded two. a podcast on Friday about two hours before the before the news came down, the talks were, were the Sixers were in talks for number one pick. We, on the one hand, I kind of wish that I had just released it right away, but I went and I got food and I <laughs> did a few errands and I came back and it was like, all right, we'll we'll delete this podcast. On the other hand, I'm glad I didn't because none of it would have been relevant by the time you listened to it. And now we get the Mike have on a have Mike on a second time, so I guess it I guess it worked out for all involved. I'll probably end up throwing that podcast on at the end. Mm-hmm. Um. All right, so in case you in case you, you don't know, Mike's done some terrific video breakdowns of draft prospects over the last few weeks, both on Twitter for the Sixer Sense and on B-Ball Breakdown. So I want to bring him in and get some perspective on how he thought the that Markel Fultz would fit with the Sixers and what he thought of Markel Fultz as a prospect, or what you thought. I don't know why I'm saying he when you're right here. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to leave this very open-ended and just free-floating – what are your thoughts on Markel Fultz? How do you think he fits, and what are you looking forward to in terms of that trio the Sixers now have? Sure. So in terms of Fultz, just in, in a vacuum, I mean, I think he has a strong chance to be one of the best pick-and-roll threats in the NBA. Um, he is just unbelievably crafty. It, it, it reminds me a lot, not not necessarily in the the level of skill, but just in terms of you know comparing them. It's like Joel Embiid in the post in that, these guys are so young. It's like, you know, Fultz didn't make his JV basketball team in high school, and now he's he's got everything in his bag at 19 years old. He's just an absolute surgeon in the pick and roll. I absolutely love love it from that sense. I, I definitely project him as 
a five to ten time All Star type of player. Um, and then when you when you look at that in the context of the Sixers, I mean he's the guy from from day one that everybody was saying he is the perfect fit on this team, and and I definitely agree with that. You know when you when you think about who you want to slide next to Ben Simmons, I think that. The first thing that would come to mind is someone to share the pick-and-roll duties, and you can check that off. Someone that moves well off the ball and is going to be able to space the floor from a catch-and-shoot perspective, check. And, and someone who's also going to you know, not be a ball stopper and be able to, to, to move the ball around. <clears throat> and I think that Fultz's passing is one of the most underrated parts of his game. Um, it, it, it's just a, a dream come true for Sixers fans in a lot of senses, and uh you know, I've been over the past few days, basically as soon as the, the news broke, I've been trying to kind of piece it together from an X's and O's perspective just to see exactly what it might look like. And uh, the team I've actually been watching a lot of is the Heat from the LeBron, Wade, and Bosch days. Um, and they, they have some really interesting stuff with, you know, like putting LeBron in, in the high post and having Wade and Bosch screen for each other. I, I just picture that working perfectly in the Sixers, you know, for, for you know, putting Ben Simmons in the high post and having Fultz and Embiid screening for each other. It's just, it's going to be an absolute nightmare for defenses. And, you know, you put any combination of those three in the pick and roll, it's just unstoppable. I, I don't see how teams are going to be able to compete with that. And I'm really, really intrigued to see what exactly Brett Brown is going to do with it all. Yeah, it's it's really going to be fun, just the sheer number of Sets they can throw at you with one four pick and rolls, four one pick and rolls, mm-hmm. anyone with Embiid. There's so many options, and they can all work. You know, one of the things with Markell is he's so he's built so well that you can see him being effective as a screener. There's it, it, it's it's going to be fun. One thing I know you're working on this upcoming week is a shot on projecting jump shots. Yes, and I think Markell Fultz is a guy. I don't think any he was kind of a streaky shooter in high school. He came out, he knocked down 41 percent from three. So I guess your thoughts on his jump shot, both off the dribble and also off the catch, because I think a lot of times they're 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 kind of a different skill almost. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the thing that the number one thing in, that makes Fultz's jump shot, you know, it gives him so much success is his footwork. He has just impeccable footwork, and and he he's able to find his balance in basically any situation, which really gives me a lot of promise that he'll be a, continue to be a great shooter off the dribble as well as off the catch. Um, I think that the one thing that a lot of people point to um, to kind of detract his shot is his low free throw percentage. He shot about 65% from the free throw line. And, yeah, historically that's a better indicator of, of success. You know, at the, at the next level, a lot of people will use the college free throw percentage and put more stock in that than college three-point percentage. But I went, I went in and I broke down a lot of, you know, his form. And w- the problem with – his free throw shooting is that he has such a high release that, you know, when he's able to shoot off the dribble and off the catch, he's able to get a lot of lift underneath him, and that helps him to kind of find the apex of his shot. But from the free throw line, he really struggles to do that because he, he doesn't have much lift underneath him. Um, so that that's kind of the reason that, that he struggles from there. I don't think it's it's kind of like a, a Jekyll and Hyde situation where he's only, you know his free throw percentage is the true indicator and his jump shot is just kind of a, a fake, a fake stat almost. Um, I really think that it's just kind of a, a difference in, in form that kind of results from him not having as much lift. I'm not at all worried about his jump shot translating. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think a lot of people take what is meant to be a general guideline, like a mm-hmm. guiding principle, and that largely because of sample size, but also because it's easier to 
to kind of reduce role and and luck out of that equation, I think a lot of people take a general guideline with that free throw shooting and make that like a a be all end all. Oh well, his free throw percentage is low. You can throw these these three these three point results out. And I think we're a little too willing to do that. And I agree right. with you that there are reasons why his his three point shooting is not a mirage. Mm-hmm. And let's break it. Off the dribble, off the pick and roll, you kind of hit it on it beforehand. But especially now you're going to put him in a, in a situation where you have Joel Embiid. And the way this could change Joel Embiid's game is going to be really fascinating too because I think there's one thing I saw last year. As talented as Joel Embiid is, it doesn't seem like he's been put in all that many pick and roll situations. He didn't quite seem natural doing it. And I think he has a lot of potential to unlock down the line as he, he, he becomes a little more comfortable with that. So I guess break down why Markel Fultz is so great off the pick and roll. And why he can really, you know, why he's so guard or tough to guard in those spots. Right. Okay. So yeah, I would say that um, the thing the thing that makes him the best in the pick and roll is just that, like I said, he kind of has everything in his bag. Um, you know, Kevin Pelton wrote a great article about uh, you know what's changing in the pick and roll and how everything is kind of a setup. Like the reason that that Fultz is so deadly is because when he breaks down your first line of coverage. He can pull up and hit that that mid range pull up, you know, with a, a great efficiency. So because of that, you're going to see a lot of big men have to come out and guard him. And then from that perspective, he's you know going to be a huge threat to to kind of skirt by them and get to the basket. Um, you know, you look at his pull up three point percentage. I think it was um, I think it was in like the 85th percentile um, among guards since 2006 in the last decade. Um, I mean, he, like I said, he's unbelievably crafty. Um, when you watch him attack the basket, when he when he just kind of a straight line drive, it reminds me a lot of James Harden in the herky jerky, you know, keeping the ball at his hip away from defenders and able to draw fouls. I mean, he's he, and, and and when you couple that with a really really good um, passing vision, you know, being able to to find and beat and even Simmons down low, it's going to be really really interesting to see how defenses try and defend that. Yeah, and I think it's going to, you know, first of all, I I hate you. <laughs> because I just got off the phone with Kevin Pelton, and I completely forgot to ask him about that article he wrote on the uh, pull-up jump shot and the value of it. And I spent so much, you know, he graded the trade, he released his his warp projections, he did all this stuff recently, and I focused on that, and I forgot that article he wrote, and I hate myself for it right now. <laughs> but I also, you know, I, I think it's a good point on his passing vision, because I think that's a really underrated aspect of, a game, of his game. I think people see the, the lack of team success and a 36% usage rate. And they don't realize he's passing the David fucking Crisp. <laughs> yeah, and on top of that, they Washington ran out, took out a lineup with two traditional bigs. Yeah, they didn't have either. Neither one of them could really stretch the floor. He was pretty clogged down there for space. I, I think that whole narrative about him not being a, a winning player is just absolutely ridiculous. Imagine if you put De'Aaron Fox on the Washington team, would he not be a winner? I mean, it's just right. it, it's just out of this world. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so context dependent that. Right. And, and you're right, even beyond Chris, who, you know, I, I used him because he was easiest one to remember off the top of your head. He was he was probably one of their better players. Uh, <laughs> so going to their big men situation, a lot of the same complaints we could have had with with NC State and Dennis Smith certainly applied to him. And once he, you know, once he gets out there, he's going to come out there one day with Dario Sharish at the four. And maybe Dario could be like a 35 percent guy around somewhere around that spot next year. And then Joel Embiid at the five, and his eyes are just going to light up because that right. is a that is a paint he has never seen before. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
All right, let's go to the defensive side of the court because that's probably his his major concern that people have outside of the whole winning thing. And I think, like you, that's kind of a lazy narrative that has very little to no relevance. And frankly, if you go back and you watch watch from his days in high school, that was very much not the narrative. Mm-hmm. But if you look at his defense, what do you look at from what he, what kind of tools he has, what he can become, and maybe what uh, you know what tendencies he has to kind of unlearn and overcome right so tools from a tools perspective that's you know that's not the concern at all i think he he's got about a six nine six ten wingspan and you know good size at six five he's about 195 pounds and he's got quick feet i I really don't i don't think there's any physical matchup i would look at and say oh you gotta you gotta hide markel fultz on him I, i don't think that's the concern i think a lot of it you know has to do with um, unfortunately, what I would call lazy defense. Um, and and I, I hate to, to say that about a player when you don't know them and you don't know what's going through their head on a court, but the number of times that I, I saw, you know, his man pass the ball and he just comes right up out of his stance and then gets beat back door or is lazy to, to you know, recover on a screen, it's just he's got some really bad habits on that end that are going to need fixing. But I'll say this, I would take – someone that has the physical tools that needs to refine their, their, their mental habits over the opposite 10 times out of 10. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember Ben Falk, the Sixers, former VP of player strategy, VP of basketball strategy. I should probably get that right. Um, he recently wrote something where he threw people into three buckets mm. and those who can't, those who don't, and those who, I should probably get it right. I believe it was those who want to but don't know how. I think right. That's yeah, that, that was the final yeah. one. That was the final one. Yeah, you're right. So those who can't, uh, those who won't, and those who don't know how. Uh, that, yeah. that, I think, is the three buckets. And I think Markel Fultz, there might be a little overlap. Like, they're clearly not three distinct buckets. But yeah. I think it's mostly those that I think he would fall into that doesn't know. He certainly doesn't fall into the can't. Right. But he might, be, he might be in a little bit of a combination of the won't or don't know how. Right. And I think that it kind of sparked an interesting conversation I had the other day on Twitter was like, do you maybe, you know, look at bringing in or or maybe someone that's already on the roster having shooting guards defend the primary guard on another team, not only to, to you know, hopefully mask his, his bad tendencies a little bit, but also to kind of give him some energy. I mean, maybe that's the reason that LeBron James didn't guard Kevin Durant the entire, you know, all five games in the finals just to kind of save a little bit of energy there and have him be in tip-top shape on the offensive end of the floor. It's just an idea to bring up and, you know, could help to hide some of his weaknesses. Yeah, and I think I think that was one thing. I recently talked to Mike Schmitz, and he said, look, when we saw him at the U18s, he looked a lot better. He competed at a higher yeah. level defensively, and I think part of that is because he wasn't, you know, he wasn't trying to do everything every trip down a court offensively. I do agree that you know, asking him to chase a Russell Westbrook and also maintain like a 30% usage rate, that's probably a little tough to do. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of these, these guards who maybe fall into the the won't, I think there's there's something to that. Yeah. So it will be, you know, he does at least have the size where you can put him on a two or a three if they're not much of an initiator and give him a little bit of a, a, a breather. I think that's going to help them down the line. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any other major concern you have about his translating that, that Sixers fans should know about and be on the lookout for either, you know, a short term early in his career type thing or a longer term thing that he really has to improve upon. Yeah, I would say one thing is um, he he has a definitely a tendency to rely a lot on kind of 
bad or contested pull-up long twos. Um, and he, like I said, he did shoot them at a pretty efficient rate. But, you know, I, I would venture to guess in Brett Brown's system, I think the Sixers had the, the third or second fewest mid-range jump shots in the entire NBA last year. I would venture to guess that they can kind of shake that habit out of them. Um, long term, I, I really can't think of anything I, other than, you know, I've heard some whispers about his knee or some, some health concerns. I don't know anything about that. That's really the only other thing I could point to in his game that I could say there's even the slightest cause for concern. Yeah, I mean, if you had a long-term concern, it is those defensive habits, but I don't necessarily have that that concern that he's a, uh, you know, won't guy. So yeah. I, I we'll see. We won't know. We have so precious little information. But yeah, he's certainly think, young enough where you can get him out of those habits. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the, you know, yes, you, you know, you see him on defense and at times he looks relaxed, but I think a lot of it is just the stylistic, you know, the way he plays the game. It's kind of the same thing as, as Ben Simmons where – they just have kind of a, a more relaxed approach or smooth approach to how they play the game. So, you know, you're not going to see them being the guys that are slapping the hardwood. So it, <laughs> it, maybe that's just kind of where that narrative comes from. Well, we we have TJ McConnell for that. <laughs> yeah, we got, yeah. You don't need to slap the hardwood guys. Um, no. It's funny. Also, <laughs> speaking of slap the hardwood guys, I, uh, I a couple of weeks ago had tweeted that the Sixers should um, – Bring back Tony Roten for summer league, oh, and he actually go. just he actually just liked it or, or retweeted or something. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Tony would play summer league. You know, usually you don't see veterans like that do it, but then again, Tony's out of league, so he probably yeah. would. Uh, it would. It would be smart of him to at least. Uh, yeah, boy, would he would he tear that up? Oh um, man, fifty a game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, your big men that you're trying to evaluate, they might not. They, they might, might not, not like that it. so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. All right, so I guess we'll pivot off of Fultz, and I almost hate doing that because it's so such an exciting time. But let's go to more of the trade focus. I guess if let's look at it, first of all, under the perspective, not necessarily what you would have done at three, but under the assumption that they would have gone Josh Jackson at three. What are your thoughts real quickly on Jackson as a pro prospect and as a fit, and would you have ultimately done this deal? Starting off so with Jackson, I am definitely lower on Jackson than most. Um, we kind of spoke about it the other day, but I, I just don't have much confidence in his jump shot at all. Um, when you look at his form, it's just the, – the hitch is just a, a disaster. And, you know, <laughs> when you look at guys that are coming into the league that need I, to change I appreciate their jump the shot, bluntness of that. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no way around it. Um, I mean, it's – when you look at guys that need to change their jump shot, it's, it usually has to do with their hand placement or something they need to change with their elbow or, or their footwork. With Jackson, you know, th- those are just slight changes. But with Jackson, it's a complete reconstruction of his jump shot that you need to do. And I, I have no idea what an NBA shooting coach will do to it. Um, on, on top of that, I, I'm not at all sold on his ability to create for himself. Um, I, I think that he showed a really strong over-reliance on, like, running one-handed floaters uh, in college that just aren't going to fly in the NBA. Um, I have a few defensive concerns about him. He he just really did not display a lot of really strong defensive technique and form at Kansas. Um, And I think that that's kind of stuff that will probably take about three to five years to correct. Um, So I'm lower on Jackson than most. I have him at seventh on my big board right now. So I would not have taken him if I were the Sixers. Uh, I just think he's a really poor fit you know, putting two guys that aren't your center that can't shoot on the same floor, I really don't think that would that would have been a good idea for the Sixers. 
So then you look at the trade overall and, and, you know, what that really meant for the Sixers to move up. It's so unique that the Sixers got to a situation where they got the best player who's also the best fit. I mean, that's a very, very rare situation to get yourself into. Um, in terms of what they gave up, I think it's incredibly, incredibly fair from the Sixers' perspective. Um, there's not a, like a really long history of teams trading back from one to three or, or you know, in that range. There's, we've only really seen the, the Penny Hardaway trade where the Warriors gave up three future first-round draft picks for that. And, you know, com- compare that to this trade, and the Sixers made out like, you know, highway robbery. Um, I, I fully, fully support the trade. Would have done it ten times out of ten. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm right. And uh, judging by the conversation we previously had, which you can stick around, I'll, I'll include that at the end of this podcast. But based on that conversation where we spent, you know, a half an hour debating between fit and upside and which weaknesses <laughs> we were willing to live without, I kind of got the sense that that is where you were going with this. And it really does amaze me that they ended up only giving up one future first-round pick to move, and they even put number one protection on both of the years that it could possibly convey. It was, a, it was you know, it, it, look, there's never a risk in giving up potentially two top five picks, but they mitigated, mitigated that risk about as well as they could have. And like you, I have Fultz as the best prospect in this draft. I have Fultz as the best fit in this draft. Mm-hmm. And that's um, so rare. That's so rare to be able to get that. Well, I mean, especially when you're like the Sixers and you have two guys who, look, we can debate whether or not Fultz is going to end up being a better prospect than, than Simmons. I think that's a pretty interesting debate, but probably not one we want to start, you know, this far into a podcast that we're trying to keep a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit tight. But it was outside of him. I don't think I don't think there was a debate. I think Ben Simmons was better than anybody that could have been there. So the fit is important. And like I said, Fultz, he checks both of those boxes. All right, let's move down in the draft real quickly, and then I'll let you go. There's First of all, the Sixers have four second-round picks for now. Uh, I can't imagine there's any way they will have four second-round picks come the end of Thursday. But there's also been talk directly from Brian Clangelo about potentially moving up in the late first-round picks. So we'll include that portion of the draft as well. Is there anybody you really have your eye on on the guy that they could either move up to grab or take with one of those picks? Yeah, so one guy I would love to see them move up to get is Shemi Ojale. I'm really, really high on his game. I, I kind of view him as almost like Robert Covington with, with more explosiveness. He, he's got a really, really good shooting stroke. More muscle, six, too. More muscle, yeah, absolutely. 6'7 with a 6'10 wingspan, 235. I mean, he and, and he moves his feet so well. He's going to be able to fend one through fours in the NBA. I, I really, really like his NBA potential. And then a guy that's more likely to be available if the Sixers were to keep, you know, 36 or 39 is Jonah Bolden, who uh, I'm sure a lot of people aren't very familiar with his story. He was at UCLA for a year, in two years ago, left UCLA, went to play in the Adriatic League, and really, really shined over there. And, and he's just, you know, he's, a, he's kind of, I would view him as a as a power forward in, in the league, but he's got an, a really, really nice jump shot, really smooth, 6-10, I think a 7-2 or 7-3 wingspan. He's going to be able to protect the rim. I just think, I can't really understand why he's not viewed as a, as a higher talent. I've seen him mostly in the 30s. Um, but, yeah, th- those two guys are not only guys that I view as, you know, much higher value than they're currently being mocked, but also would be really good fits for the Sixers. Yeah, I mean, Bolden is really interesting because, like you said, he was at UCLA for two years. Yeah. And then he went and decided to go overseas, and I think most people kind of wrote him off as a prospect. And then he just blew up in a big way. And when mm-hmm. you start combining that, you know, kind of progression in terms of his skill level 
and his sheer physical attributes and athleticism and fluidity and, and length and coordination, he is a really interesting prospect. I think if there's one reason he's probably still down, I might be a little concerned about how smart he is as both basketball IQ and maybe emotional IQ. Mm. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason he transferred away. But it, uh, he, he's certainly a guy that is a high upside, not really even a gamble in the second round because you can't really, like you're not, you're not gambling anything. There's no real risk. Right. So I think he is an, an interesting uh, you know, a guy to take a flyer on and see whether he works out. I mean, it, the, the way that he played this past year, just I mean, it blew everybody away. Nobody mm-hmm. had nobody had those expectations at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I certainly agree with you on Shemi. He's another guy that frequently comes up. Although I will say, I made that crack about Robert Covington. He looks like he's added a little bit of bulk too. So good, he does. Good yeah. on him. Uh, he looked looked good in that photo. In the you know <laughs> when you're talking about the four pillars of the Sixers future and Robert Covington, the undrafted forward out of Tennessee State, right. is now sitting there with Markel Fultz and Joel Embiid <laughs> and Ben Simmons. Seems kind of ridiculous, but he's he's earned it. Um, Definitely. All right. Well, I think uh, I think that's great. Thank you so much for jumping on. Like I said, everybody go follow him on Twitter. Follow... I've done too many of these podcasts today. <laughs> follow him on Twitter. Mike... Or, I'm sorry. M. O'Connor underscore NBA. Uh, he is a fantastic follow. He's been gaining some steam of late and deserves quite a bit more followers. I think you'll really enjoy his his video breakdowns and his general general coverage of the team. Uh, but thank you for jumping on, and I'll talk to you soon. And, oh, by the way, stick around, because I'll include that original podcast in there as well. Thanks a lot for having me, Derek. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right, so that was Mike O'Connor. Once again, that is M. O'Connor underscore NBA. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, really great follow. Here is the original interview I did with Mike which was last Friday afternoon, just hours before the announcement came out that the Sixers and the Celtics were, you know, have had discussions or that a trade was virtually agreed upon, which basically rendered this next section irrelevant. If you don't want to listen to it, like I said, feel free to close it. But I do think there are there is some good information in there. If you want to you know, get a handle on the Jackson, Isaac, Tatum, Monk, the Aaron Fox, Lonzo Ball kind of tier of prospects. So here's the original interview with Mike that we recorded before the trade happened. Welcome, everybody. I am now joined by Mike O'Connor of the Sixers Sense and B-Ball Breakdown, one of the very best analysts out there that you may not have. If you Let me put it to you this way. He has 935 followers. He should have <laughs> 10 times more than that. So stop, hit the pause button, go follow him, M O'Connor underscore NBA. But how you doing, Mike? I'm doing great, Derek. Thanks a lot for having me on. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, all right. Let's kind of get right into it. Sure. You've done a number of terrific video breakdowns, both in Twitter threads and for B-Ball Breakdown, and I'm I'm sure for Sixers Sense as well. Mm-hmm. You're Brian Colangelo. You have Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid and Dario Saric. You have mm-hmm. the third pick. You have the future assets at your disposal. What do you do? come next Thursday where are you looking for a trade up trade down who are you taking what's just very open-ended what's your goal right now yeah so I mean I'm I'm pretty surprised that this is not a more popular opinion I've seen a lot of people kind of shame it but I I am very much team trade down Um, I think that just when you look at this draft I think more so than than any draft in recent memory the the three through eight or nine and you could even say two through nine have such an even plane of talent and I think that what that's going to do is cause is going to enable a lot of teams to be able to draft for fit in that range because there's such a small drop off between the level of talent there. So if I'm the Sixers and I'm looking at this situation, 
I, I see a lot of teams that are going to be coveting a guy like Josh Jackson or maybe De'Aaron Fox or even Malik Monk and, and the teams that want to move up. And I'm going to kind of take that low-hanging fruit and move back. Um, and the guy that I would move back to get specifically is Malik Monk. Um, and he's a guy that I, I've done a number of pieces on, and, and I just find his offensive game just to be the perfect fit for the Sixers, the absolute number one perfect fit. And when you look at what he does well in terms of being an elite shooter, and, and I remember when, when the Sixers drafted Nerlens Noel and Joel Embiid, Sam Hinkie used to talk about how rim protection was at a premium in our league. And I think that now we're at a place where shooting, elite shooting, is at a premium in our league, and the Sixers just don't have that. I think it's it's pretty dangerous from a roster construction point to continue along this path without, um, you know, getting a guy who's an elite shooter. When you look at the teams that are kind of toiling in mediocrity right now, that's what they're lacking is shooting. Um, you know, think about teams like the Clippers or the Raptors. How much how much better would they be with an elite level shooter on their team? So we don't want to get caught as much as you want to think about best player available. I just think it's so important to, to have that elite shooter. And I view Monk as one of the best shooters to come out of the draft in years. Yeah, you know, it was it was funny. We were sitting there on draft night. Uh, I was at the Spike Eskins lottery party. Mm-hmm. And everyone's sitting there saying, just get to the commercial break. Get to the commercial yeah. break. It's like a common saying that I don't know if, if necessarily it's as true as people make it out to be. But I'm sitting there and I have the same reaction to you. Or as you did, like getting to the commercial break didn't do all that much for me if you ended up at three because yeah. I have so little separation. At that point, I didn't even know who I would take at three if they got the third pick. And because, you know, there were other things, getting the number one pick, like I had people arguing that getting the pick swap, and look, I get the complete euphoria that, you know, ripping off Vlade actually yielded something, and I get that. It's it's <laughs> yeah, fun for me yeah. too, trust me. But, you know, I had people arguing about that was more important than getting the number one pick. No, it wasn't stop. I had people, you know, we were debating about the Lakers pick. Getting number three pick was nice because if you have a, like if Brian Colangelo is sitting there at three and he has a strong preference, he can now go out and get that. Mm-hmm. I just don't see nearly as much separation as you do. And the guys who I think might end up being the most talented, I have very serious con- uh, concerns about mm-hmm. their fit long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and I think that it, what it also has done is put the Sixers in, a, in an interesting situation to kind of control the draft. A lot of people have talked about how the draft starts at three with the Sixers because the top two picks are such locks. And as we've seen, you know, over the last week or so, there's been a lot of noise about Lonzo Ball maybe not going to the Lakers, which would be really, really interesting for the Sixers situation. But the Sixers really have a lot of power in that. But at the same time, they have a lot of questions as to where to go. And it's a lot of pressure on Brian Colangelo, I think. Yeah, it really is. I do think, you know, to me, if you get 5 and 10, that would be incredible. Yeah. I do think that's probably a little bit optimistic. I mean, it's impossible to say because yeah. that is still Vlade. I can't, it's I can't like, speak for him. Yeah, it's like at what point do you stop, you know, treating the Kings as the Kings? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like we have no idea what they might want to give up for to, to move up and get somebody. Yeah, but I mean, look, if you're if you're giving me a guy – you know, like we, we we can debate who who would you take at five, and I think I had Monk six, so I'm certainly certainly kind of with you in that regard. But if you can give me a guy, you know, maybe if if your your preference is Isaac or Monk or whoever mm-hmm. it might be, if you can get a guy like that, then also get a shot at a guy like Smith or yeah. you know a guy like Nilakina. You know, should should Smith sm- fall, I think it would be a little bit surprising. But then again, surprising things happen on draft night every time. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to take a free gamble on one of those any day of the week. Absolutely. Completely. Right. Let's go to that 
actually, let's take a, a slight pivot because we did talk about fit. If this were just your rankings, not taking the Sixers into account at all, not taking their existing personnel, mm-hmm. who would you then have or who would you then take third in a completely, you know, you had a, a completely open roster to build from? Yeah, I have Jonathan Isaac third on okay. my board. Um, and, and I think he's, when, when you look at, if you were to start at a blank slate, the, the amount of versatility that he provides, like you could just put him on pretty much any NBA team and he makes them so much better. He can, he could, he, he is just the absolute pinnacle of what you would look for in an NBA player to build one from scratch in, in today's NBA. Um, so he's, he's, I think, the third best talent in this draft. Um, but I have Monk not far behind him at four, though. Um, so, yeah, I, I would say third, third best talent would be Isaac. So if you drop him for the Sixers, or you're, you're, the fit is maybe a little more questionable. What mm-hmm. is your concern mainly that he might get the most out of him defensively at, or at least starting at the four spot? Yeah, I, I do think so. I think that on, on the Sixers specifically, I think that getting another guy who's you know six foot eleven and is going to be defending threes and fours, although he can switch onto ones, is going to push Ben Simmons further down and closer to a guy who's going to be defending point guards, and I personally. Really do not want that to happen, not only because I don't think that he's really suited for that, but also because I need to see him around the basket looking for rebounds and to push in transition. That's why I'm not really, I'm not really optimistic about getting a guy, or not, not really overvaluing a guy who's um, defending mostly threes and fours on the, on the Sixers. I think we have, we have enough of those already. So, I mean, uh, do you think, could you see him down the line if he puts on some weight? I guess it's a two-part question. First of all, do you think he has a frame put on weight? And if he does, could you see him getting spot five minutes as well? Yes, absolutely. I definitely think he could because he's you know he's he's six eleven, a seven foot one wingspan, and when you combine, you know, I think that he's only two hundred and five pounds right now, and he just need he really needs to add some core strength. I think that's really where he got kind of beat up when he switched on to fives. And once you get to that point where he adds a little bit of weight, I see no reason why he can't defend one through five, which is a very rare player in the NBA. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty insane statement you just made. I, I'm, I'm very high on Isaac as well, and I think there's there's a part of me that, I, mean, I don't think he's a type, we can get into some of his, his defensive kind of habits, and I think the, he would struggle defending the perimeter to start with, but I think mm-hmm. long term he has a capability where he could at least do that enough where you are going to be able to still get some of his value. You know, I think one of the things with the way the NBA has gone and the fact that you a lot of times only have one real big man, one real rim protector, getting a little bit of, of weak side rotation from some mm. of these maybe positions that you wouldn't normally normally look for it from might have some value to a team. And I do think he's got such a unique combination of foot speed and length. And, you know, he, he can get better at playing angles, but I think he has it in him, you know, five, six years from now when we're really talking about a guy's prime. He's, he's very intriguing to me, but um, yeah, certainly... Let's go back to Monk for a little bit. Okay. He played a lot of, of point guard in high school. Mm-hmm. He didn't play very much at Kentucky, and even when, when Fox was out, he didn't necessarily play that role, although his, his, he had incredible scoring nights when Fox was out. He really wasn't mm-hmm. a lead distributor. Do you think he has it in him where he can grow in that? And then the second part of that question, really it's a different question. The second question then is, what do you see in him as a defender down the line, and especially on the Sixers when he might be able to focus a little more on not necessarily defending the one, but maybe defending the weakest perimeter player. Yeah, perfect. I mean, you just absolutely teed it up for me to drive home my points on Monk. But uh, so the thing, the thing that stands out 
the most about, you know, what is overlooked about Monk's game, I think, is his pick-and-roll play. He only, only about 5% of his possessions on offense at Kentucky were in the pick-and-roll. And we've seen this in the past with guys like Eric Bledsoe. Remember Eric Bledsoe coming out of college was viewed as, like, a decent spot-up shooter. He wasn't viewed as, as the pick-and-roll assassin that he is today. Same thing with Devin Booker. He only had, I think, like 10 pick-and-rolls the entire year at Kentucky. So he's, he could be one of these guys that we see come out of there um, and, and just didn't get a chance to display what he can do. And I, I think on top of that, when you look at his pick-and-roll possessions at Kentucky, there he was the only real – he was the only guy besides Kevin Willis who could stretch the floor at all. So when he was in the pick-and-roll – he didn't really have anywhere to go. He didn't have anyone to distribute to. The defense could just collapse on him. And he just really didn't get a fair chance to create. And when you combine that with his ability to shoot off the dribble, I mean, he, he's as good of a shooter off the dribble as I've seen in, in years. Um, he's just got absolutely perfect footwork and balance. And I think that that'll translate into, you know, the the increasing value of the, the pull-up three-pointer in the pick and roll. Kevin Pelton wrote a a great piece about that a couple of weeks ago about the, just the value of that. So I, I am optimistic about Monk's pick and roll play. Um, and in terms of his defense, so another reason why he's a, a seamless fit on the Sixers is because he can he will be the guy to defend point guards, and that allows Ben Simmons to to not have to do that um, because you know Monk. I, I really project him as a solid on-ball defender. When you look at his defensive possessions, he gets into a great stance. He's really, really quick footwork. Um, he, he does have kind of a sense of, of laziness at times uh, when he's off the ball, but on the ball, he's actually a really, really good defender. Um, he, and and what, what I keep coming back to in terms of drafting him and, and a lot of the concerns about his pick-and-roll defense is that being a a, a point guard in the NBA is so little, you know, it's just the least important defensive position. You know, what am I, what am I more worried about? A point guard who can't get over a screen or a big man who can't defend in space. It's just so much more important to have a, a big man on the back end of that pick and roll as it is to have a guard who's going to be fighting through screens. So for that reason, as, as, as much as there is reason to be concerned about Monk's defense and his ability to fight through screens on the pick and roll, it's just simply not as important as a big man or even a wing. Um, and, and there's a lot of good examples of teams out there, like the Warriors, for example, that are able to switch Stephen Curry and then use a secondary switch to switch him onto a two-guard or something off of pick-and-roll. So long story short, sorry for the rant, but I really think that Malik Monk is, is going to be fine on defense and his pick-and-roll play offers a lot, to be, uh, a lot to be happy about. Yeah, I mean... On the one hand, I do agree with you that it is – I mean, the big man spot is such a, a higher priority. His pick-and-roll defense is bad. I don't think there's any way to really get around that. I mean, you mm-hmm. I, you referenced his numbers before on the other end, but he gave up – opponent shot 50% ball handlers off the pick-and-roll when he was defending yep. on a pretty decent number of possessions. Obviously, a lot of that is impacted by what the big and what the team personnel around him is doing, but he does struggle to get through that. Mm-hmm. And I think he's certainly going to be picked on. But I agree with you that the fact that the Sixers can hide him – you know, whether or not, you know, a lot of talk has been made about his, his wingspan. Mm-hmm. And I think he measured at the Kentucky Pro Day with a 6'3 wingspan, which is yeah. really bad for his size. But you go back previous measurements, and he was at like 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. And a lot of times what these teams do is they will intentionally dock an inch or two from your wingspan and your standing reach. So your vertical jumps, jump looks a little bit more impressive, which mm. 
to me sounds a little counterproductive. Yeah, definitely. Quite yeah. frankly, I look at wingspan a little more than I look at vertical jump. But it it happens. People take that vertical jump number and they're really they're really invested in making that look good. So I would say if he measured six five, six six, two or three times in a row, and all of a sudden Kentucky has a different measurement, I would I would kind of throw that one out. Um, so he's got a decent set of tools to work with as a point guard defender. I do agree with you. There are some habits that I would like to see changed. But like I said, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna bet on a position improving his defense, like you said, really, uh, I am go. It's gonna be it's gonna be that spot for sure. Definitely, definitely. And I, I you touched on his wingspan, like. I, I can't I, – I just have so much trouble understanding it. But when you look at him, like, his arms look long, don't they? Like, he, he really looks almost like a like a shrunken, like, Kevin Durant almost with his arms just hanging real low. But I don't know. I have I have honestly no idea what to think about his wingspan. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like I said, it's it's crazy that these things happen and people don't call him out on it. It's, it's yeah. surprising me that you think – I'm pulling it up right now. Let's see. He had a – 6'7 wingspan at USA Basketball in 2014, 6'6 at the Nike Skills Academy in 2015, 6'6 at USA Basketball in 2015. And okay, you can say, like, maybe if it's 6'6, 6'6.5, 6'7, there might be a little bit of human error there. Mm-hmm. And then 6'3.5 at the Kentucky Pro Day. That <laughs> yeah. does not happen. That, that's, no. not, that's not a valid measurement. And no. a lot of people still go based off of that. It's not, look, his, his defensive tools aren't perfect. Certainly his build. His ability to get through screens, some of that stuff are very legitimate concerns. Mm-hmm. I mean, but like I said, I'm I'm willing to gamble on that spot if he can provide more. And really, if I'm looking at Malik Monk, if there's a reason, I have a little bit of question on him, certainly at a pick at three, but even, you know, maybe four or five, it's much more the playmaking and whether or not he can grow that. And if I have a reasonable degree of confidence that he can do that, I'm willing to overlook his defense pretty easily. Yeah, pretty and easily. one of his... Underrated skills is really he, – he's actually a great lob passer, which yes, sounds yes. like a really small thing. But when you put him on the floor with Joel Embiid and Rashawn Holmes, like that is a really a valuable skill to have in the pick and roll. So just a little added bonus that he can kind of create there. Yeah, and I, I will say there have been times – there were times at Kentucky where I wasn't all that optimistic about his, his court vision and his instincts. Mm-hmm. But that is kind of the one skill that he showed where I said, you know what, I can I can see that growing there. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we'll see. It, it's he doesn't. I don't, you're never going to project him to be the primary initiator. Right. You just want him to be able to, you know, handle a, a weak side pick and roll, a second side pick and roll, attack a closeout, and make a smart read. And as long yeah. as he can do that, I think he's gonna he's gonna have a role in this team. He is interesting. I love not only a, a, an elite catch and shoot shooter, and I think he is. And I think a lot of times, you know, we worry about shots translating, and that's fair. Like, we've seen so many players come in and just not be able to make at the rate they did in college. And certainly NBA size and speed is a completely different game. But, man, can he elevate on his shot, and, man, can he shoot coming off of a, a screen, too. Mm-hmm. And those are great things for an offense. Yep, definitely. Right. Let's change to the forwards. Sure. So, Jackson, Tatum, you already talked about Isaac for a little bit, so we'll skip those. Mm-hmm. But Jackson and Tatum, your thoughts on them whether or not they would fit with the Sixers, and I guess kind of your reaction on how you would feel if they were the pick at three uh, on June 22nd. So, yeah, so Josh Jackson, see, I, I, I on most teams I would be 100% fine with him going third overall. My thing with him is just I, I have just such little confidence in his shot. I, I'm, I really worry about that hitch, and I, I because he has a hitch, you know, a lot of times you see guys – the issues with their shot is their hand placement on the ball or, you know, their, their footwork and setting up. When you have a hitch, that requires a complete 
teardown of the shot and a reconstruction. So I, I just I don't have much confidence in his shot translating. Um, and when I, I always come back to this with him, it's really, really hard to run a fluid NBA offense with two guys that can't shoot, especially when neither one of them is, the, is your center. So if you're going to have Josh Jackson and Ben Simmons sharing the floor for major minutes, that is just a nightmare for any time they're off the ball. Um, and yeah, both of those guys are, are smart cutters and, and maybe they could find ways to work, but I really, really worry about Josh Jackson's fit. And again, it's a shame because he does everything so well except shoot. Um, and, and there's so many skills to love there, but I, I really, I am not optimistic at all about his fit on the Sixers. You know, it was, it was funny. I, I, cause you watch games during the season. I take notes while I'm watching kind of get a trend of what I consistently like and don't like about a prospect. Maybe make a list of things I want to look back at when the season ends to really start sorting through my rankings. And when I think when I was sitting there watching him, sure, you you noted the shot and you said, man, that's that's got to be picked up. Mm-hmm. Then I went back after the season and I did. I watched the rest of his play and I'm like, man, I, I really want to like this guy. I really want to love this guy. And then I focused in on that shot and I watched 100 shots in a row. <laughs> And whew, I, it's not like I talked myself out of him, but I got to the same place you were, where it's like I just I have no confidence in this. And yeah. That's that's a really tough spot to be in because, like you said, two forwards in the NBA who can't shoot, not great. Two mm-hmm. primary initiators, not primary, maybe a secondary for for Jackson, but it's really hard to initiate even from the wings if you can't, you know, if they don't have to respect that shot. It would. He's the one that I lose sleep over because if he improves it. That could really end up. You could really end up missing a talent yeah. at that point. But if he doesn't, you could be sitting there in three years, going, "Man, I don't, I don't know if these two guys can play together." Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I totally understand what a lot of people have brought up about. You know, if he's the best talent, you know, you pick the best player available. But at some point, you have to kind of consider the situation you're bringing him into. If you're surrounding him with potentially three starters that also, or sorry, two other starters that can't shoot, that's a toxic situation, and his value isn't going to go up. You know, so, I mean, that's that's where you really have to make a decision on draft night, you know, to kind of project what he's going to be for your team. Yeah, it would be if he would have came out last year yeah. and let's say Ben Simmons is in that draft, maybe wherever you're drafting, the best player available is Josh Jackson. I'm much more amenable to that argument because at that point, you're only looking to surround Embiid. You don't already have Simmons. And I just can't look at Jackson and say, you know what? And obviously things happen, like people develop way more than you expect or less than you expect. But I don't look at him right now and say he's likely to be the franchise guy over uh, Ben Simmons. And because of that, I can't completely ignore that fit. Mm-hmm. All right, Definitely. Tatum, uh, thoughts on on him as a prospect and a fit with the Sixers? Yeah, I'm, I'm higher on Tatum than most. Um, I think that I think Mark Whittington wrote a great piece for Liberty Ballers about him, just highlighting the fact that he's one of those guys who is not elite at anything, but he's very good at a lot of things. And... <laughs> You know, I'm normally the first guy to kind of denounce them, but he he is, I think, just like the, the pinnacle of that type of player. Um, I think a lot of the value he'll provide, um, as much as people don't want to hear this, is as an isolation scorer for the Sixers, because who do they really have besides Joel Embiid, who's going to get them a bucket in a, in a late shot clock or even late game type of situation? Um, I love his defensive versatility. I think when you put – I think you could easily have a lineup um, of Embiid, Simmons, Covington, and Tatum. And I think that they would have very little problems finding some way to match up with most teams. Um, 
I'm not, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not in love with the idea of him on the Sixers, but I definitely think it could work. I, I do like his shot form a lot. He's a really good catch and shoot guy. Um, so I, I, I am definitely, I would, I would see his fit being much better than, a, than a Josh Jackson. Not that he's a better prospect, but a much better fit for the Sixers. So if you're sitting there and you had to pick through one of the, one, between one of these three guys, mm-hmm. Jackson, Tatum, and Isaac for the Sixers, who would you take? I would go with Isaac there. Okay. Because when you were when you were describing, you know, the fact that you could see that combination of Covington, Tatum, Simmons, and Embiid finding a way to match up with most most teams, mm-hmm. in my head I was watching Isaac fly around the court. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I definitely could see that as well. I would say that Tatum is a little bit quicker with it, laterally than than Isaac is, um, and that's what would give me a little more a little more hope about him maybe defending shooting guards at the next level, not permanently, but but at least be able to switch onto them. Um, and Isaac, I just think is, has that ability, but he's just a step, a step less quick than Tatum. It'd be interesting because I think Covington would get a lot of those assignments anyway. It would yeah. be fun to watch those guys try to, you know, kind of roam off ball and switch everything. That would be, that would be fun to watch. I, yep. There's a part of me that loves watching really good defensive play. And I think that could be. And, and people forget that Covington guarded. Everyone from Mike Conley to Kyle Lowry to Isaiah LeBron. Thomas. Yeah, I mean yeah. Covington is such a unique defensive talent. He's, he's he's really a great puzzle piece for the Sixers. All right, um, let's see. De'Aaron Fox, a guy yeah. who I get a lot of Sixers fans who like. Yeah, and he had he had that kind of brief dalliance with the second overall pick, where it seemed like he was a a real rumor to go there, and that's cooled off quite a bit. Coming into town on Saturday. What are your thoughts on him, kind of both league-wide and for the Sixers? Yeah, um, so when I look at the three the three point guards at the top of this draft, Fultz, Ball, and Fox, um, when you look at Fultz, it's like, well, I, when I just went through them in my head, I'm like, wow, Fultz like, ha- has almost no holes in his offensive game, elite shot creator, you know, everything you would point to. Lonzo Ball, unbelievable vision, one of the best transition players to come out of the draft. And then you get to De'Aaron Fox, and I'm like, uh, he uh, he's fast and he works hard, and <laughs> like, um, I mean, not to not to undermine his ability to to create. Um, I, I am actually pretty optimistic in his shot. Um, the one thing that that needs to change with his shot is his hand placement. If you look at the way he shoots the ball, his left hand is almost perpendicular to the basket, um, and that just absolutely needs to change. I think that that. You know, a lot of people have pointed to his form. Kind of, it, it looks, you know, pretty natural, and and can't really figure out why he can't shoot. It's the hand placement, um, and I think that he will actually be able to cr- correct that. Um, so, in that sense, I'm 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 more optimistic about him. I just absolutely would not put him on the same tier as a Fultz or a Ball. Um, I do think that he's. I would I would consider him about the same um, tier as Dennis Smith Jr. Um, I, I I just think that Fox would be a very bad fit for the Sixers to start out at least while he's figuring out his shot and he's still a very ball dominant player. Can't really do much um, outside of, you know, 15 feet and in. He's just not going to make any player on the Sixers better. Um, I don't think that his presence benefits other players on the team. He's another guy that you kind of have to like fix into the game plan as opposed to him just being a seamless fit. Um, and league wide, I think that there there is actually a, a lot to like about him. You know, I, I could see him on a team where he can attack a lot of downhill pick and rolls and find shooters. I think that that's where he'll have the most 
success. Um, but on a team like the Sixers, I, I don't really see him complementing these pieces very well. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I agree with you on the shot, certainly on the hand placement. I think that's a, a very astute point. Mm-hmm. I also, those kind of two motion shooters who have a real pause kind of in the middle of their release, he just seems like he loses so much momentum, so much, um, you know, really force in his shot that he then has to make up in the upper half of his motion. Yeah. And I think for a guy with, you know, he's already not the strongest guy in the world. And maybe there's some lower body strength issues there too, but I always worry about him kind of extending his range. Every time he has to make a jump from the high school line to the foot or so to the college line to another two foot or so to the NBA line, I just I have a little bit of hesitation making that projection anyway. And the fact that he's already starting from such a low success rate in college, you know, I think a lot of people look at that improvement as kind of fate. And I think I have a lot less confidence in that. I do, you know, just in terms of mechanics, I do like it better than Jackson. Like if I had to bet mm. on a jump shot, it would probably be De'Aaron Fox's, even though I think Jackson will probably end up, the shots that he will make will be of a lower degree of difficulty. So maybe he has less ground that he actually has to cover. But in terms of, of I think the adjustments Fox would have to make are much less severe. So because of that, I have more confidence in his shot, but it's not exactly a high degree of confidence, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I, I think that the most important thing with his shot is going to be being a guy that can catch and shoot off the ball. And like you said, it, it, he kind of has some issues in the lower half of his shot where he, he struggles to get lift a lot of times. And that's really what's going to plague him at the NBA level when that line gets a couple feet further back and he has to extend his range. So it, it, I have so much, you know, I have so much trouble projecting, you know, what an NBA coach will do with his shot. But I think it's going to be a lot about improving that lift and just changing that hand placement. And I'd say I'd give him, I'd give him about a sixty percent chance at being an average shooter in the NBA. There you go. I mean that, that that's relatively confident. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I just wish, like you, I wish he was a little better of a passer. Yeah. I wish he had a little more defensive versatility. I wish there was just something else I could project other than getting to the rim and getting the rim both in off the pick and roll and in transition. I wish I was there was something else I could really project at an elite level to then make that bet on that jump shot getting to that point. But he is certainly an interesting prospect. I do like him in general. Just if I'm making a bet, I don't think the Sixers are necessarily the team to do so. Yeah. All right. Uh, one question, and then we'll get to maybe a second-round prospect or two that you have your eye on. Mm-hmm. But if something – first of all, there's reports out there that Celtics could take Josh Jackson at one. That's not happening. They will, unless they trade that pick, they are going Markel Fultz. But Ball, again, if I had to set the favorite, I still think he is the favorite to go to the Lakers. I think it's a pretty heavy favorite. But if something does happen where he is available to the Sixers at three, what are your thoughts on him, and can you see him and Simmons working together? Yes, I I take, if he falls, I take Ball with with little hesitation. Um, I think that he is... And I'll, I'll try to choose my words carefully here. He's a perfect fit for the Sixers. He's not going to completely fill all their holes, if that makes any sense. Like, he, he fits in their system now. He's not going to completely move the needle as, as a franchise. Um, I, I think that him and Ben Simmons would be an absolute terror in transition. Um, teams would just have, a, have, you know, nightmares about having to get back. And when you add a guy... You know, who, who, two guys who are, you know, absolute savants with ball with the ball in their hand, and you can have them, you know, passing the ball back and forth in transition. 
if Simmons is pushing the ball and, and ball is out there on the wing, um, you, you have to get out there and check ball because you have to respect his shot. Um, I, I And then that, I guess, takes me to his shot where I have more confidence than most in his ability to catch and shoot, but I just think that it's going to have to be at a pretty low volume in the NBA. Um, that low release and, and the fact that he has to have such an extreme turn is going to limit his spots on the court where he can shoot. Um, it, it's not a slow release, but he also doesn't get a ton of lift. Um, it's, 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 I worry about him, you know, n- not necessarily getting a shot blocked, but contests just affecting him a little bit more than they did in college. So, you know, the, the bottom line is that I do think that he, he is going to be a good shot maker, but it's about the situations where he's going to be able to shoot. Um, and, and I do think that he'll have some success as a shooter, but just on a pretty low volume rate. Uh, once you get him on the Sixers, I think that it just kind of, you're, you're required to go out there and get that, that isolation scorer who is also, you know, a, a knockdown shooter to fill the holes that are left on the team. So getting back to what I said to begin with, he's a perfect fit, but he's not going to plug all the holes on the Sixers. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's fair. I think if you're looking at it, you know, you have kind of Simmons there to initiate a lot of the offense. Not all of it. I think we look at it like we should only have one pick-and-roll guy. I think what you ultimately need, another guy on a perimeter next to next to the ball who can create a little bit in isolation, maybe really kill pick-and-rolls, and then you have him there kind of, like you said, transition pushing, catch and shoot, making quick reads in the half court. I do think if he if Lonzo Ball is your fourth or fifth best offensive option, then I think you can really go places. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think defensively, which, I mean, look, he gets killed because of that uh, that Kentucky game, which he was not good in. Uh, a lot of Kentucky guards, or a lot of UCLA guards, by the way, were not good defensively in that game. But I think if he has a size where you can put him on, kind of like I said earlier, you can put him on the weakest perimeter option and let him almost play a free safety role. Mm-hmm. And I do think he has those instincts to get into passing lanes, to force turnovers, and then to use that with with him and Simmons out in transition, like you said, that would just cause teams nightmares. And I think one of the great things about him in transition is he doesn't, you know, you have some guys who get the ball and they push it themselves. He's very much, he will he will make that quick outlet pass without a, a hesitation. He does not need to have the ball much in transition to really help you. He he would be, he would be fun. He would be fun with, uh, with Simmons. I do, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm with you at three. That would be a pretty easy decision for me. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how much fun those teams would be? And and although the the defense would be questionable, but a lineup with Ball, Simmons, and Sarge, I mean, the ball would be flying everywhere. Yes, yes, it would. All right, one more, and then I will let you go. Sure. In the second round, do you have anybody that you really have? I know you recently wrote about Blossom Game. He was in town. Yeah. Do you have any other kind of guys that you would really, really look out for in the second round? The Sixers obviously have four second-round picks. Was it like 36, 39? Yeah, 36. A whole 39. bunch. Uh, 50 and some some other one. I don't even remember. It doesn't matter. Um, who would you be targeting with, with some of those picks? Um, so the first guy I'll bring up is almost definitely not going to fall um, to 36. But the guy, this this is a, I'm just such a huge fan of is uh, Shemi Ojale. I always butcher his name. But uh, from SMU, he's a late bloomer, transferred from Duke. Um, six foot seven, big build, 235 with a 6'10 wingspan. And he can shoot, um, and I, th- I think that he offers a lot, like so much defensive versatility. Um, he's got the quickness to defend point guards, and he's big enough to defend fours. Um, I, I absolutely love him. If the Sixers could pair those two picks and move up into the mid twenties, 
I would absolutely love to have him on the Sixers. Um, a couple other guys that, that I would look out for back there are Jawan Evans. I'm a big fan of his. Um, he's 6'1 with a 6'6 wingspan, and he's just a really, really crafty player in the pick and roll. Um, I, would, I, I really think that he has a lot of potential as a backup point guard. Um, one other guy I would point to is Jordan Bell. Uh, really, really high motor, a lot of defensive versatility, um, you know, good size for a power forward with a good wingspan. Um, another guy that I would point to and say he can he can guard two or three positions. Um, and then the last guy who I, I just kind of have this strange gut feeling that he's going to end up on the Sixers is Josh Hart. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of his, but it, as a second round, kind of take a flyer on him. He's, you know, really, really interesting player because he, he, he's just such a hard worker out there, and I don't know how much that's going to, to you know, make his, or pay his NBA salary, but I think he's a really tough defender. Um, the, his shot offers a little bit of concern for me, but, uh, you know, I just, I just have this strange gut feeling he's going to end up on the Sixers. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm, I'm like you. It's weird saying that his shot concerns me when he's a guy who shot like 40% yeah. over the last three years, but you're, you're right, there's concerning aspects to it. Um, somewhat, somehow he's made that work. I don't entirely know how, but the best way I've heard his shot described is uh, effortful, not effortless, <laughs> yeah. but effortful. <laughs> so, yeah. that, um, uh, even in case. All right, thank you again so much for jumping on. Once again, follow him on Twitter, M O'Connor underscore NBA. Read him at Sixer Cents and B Ball Breakdown. And really, he's he's at nine hundred thirty five followers now. If he's not if he's not over a thousand within a day of posting this and you all failed miserably. <laughs> thank you for jumping on and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Jack. Really appreciate it. All right. And I think that is quite enough NBA draft content here at two hours. Once again, this episode was sponsored by Harry's razors, harrys.com slash Sixers beat. Thank you all for subscribing. Thank you all for listening. If you're still here at this point, I am incredibly in- impressed, but uh, thanks again. Good luck tomorrow and take care. You've been listening to the Sixers Beat right here on LibertyBallers.com and LibertyBroadcast.co.